Welcome back to the 411 Podcasting Network. I am your host, Larry Zonka, and this is a special retro edition of the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the 411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Joining me today is the Jigaloo Jimmy Del Rey to my Dr. Tom Pritchard. He is Steve Cook. Steve, how are you? Oh, I am fantastic, Larry Zonka. This is kind of an interesting uh, point in time for us to uh, travel to. It is, considering we're in isolation. Yes, and I will expound on that further. In fact, the reason I think it's an interesting period of time for us to go back to is uh, for the, those of you who are uh, longtime 411 readers, you might recall that this is uh, not too long before a time where, uh, Larry, you might have already been there, but I know I came on board in August. So this is pretty re- much right around the time where you and I uh, were working our way up the ranks and, uh, you know, becoming the big shots that we are today. This is true. The, the old Wrestling Talks franchise with the Voodoo Penguin and Lino the Undertaker. Yes, yes. Um, just to, That came up last night, actually, when, when the Penguin were playing some online poker. Because I guess he and Taker used to do a lot back in the day. But yeah, this is like right in this, time, in this time period was when I was writing my very first news columns and you were doing your show recaps and we're both working our way up during this time period. And so a lot of stuff and some things that I had, I had not thought of in a very long time, to be honest with you. That's right. Uh, just a, a crazy time around the old 411 back in the day. This is around the time when the infamous split happened and uh, Inside Pulse was born and everybody thought 411 was going to be done. That didn't quite happen, though. We're, we, we, we kicked out of it, uh, brought in a lot of new talent like yourself and J.D. Dunn and Matt Sforcina, Massive Q. A lot of... A lot of great names that's uh, popped up over, over years uh, came from that very time period. Yeah, and as long as we're talking old names, I think we have the name drop. We got Andy Clark, Bayani Domingo back in the day. Sure. So yeah, we uh, a lot of fun back in the day. This is an interesting time, and uh, the time frame we're talking about is Steve and I are going to be talking about WrestleMania 20 and the Raw the night after. The famous Raw after Mania, WrestleMania 20 taking place on March March 14, 2004, and we're in Madison Square Garden. It's you know it's one of, one of the last WrestleManias they did in, in an arena. Yeah, because we we started getting into the bigger Mania shows. This is a uh, WrestleMania 20 dubbed "Where It All Begins." Dot 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 again. Yes. Returning to the Garden, obviously WrestleMania one, WrestleMania ten, WrestleMania 20, all at the Garden. Yeah, I remember people still wanted to go back there for WrestleManias afterwards, but of course, financially, they want to run the football stadiums. Yeah, plus nowadays it costs a lot more money to run the Garden because of the union fees and stuff as well. So yes, yes. And when you're selling a legit sixty to seventy thousand in a stadium every year, there's no incentive to go back to the Garden for Mania. No. No, I mean, maybe you give them, like, a different show or something. But, uh, yeah, and I guess the rent is an issue. Because I, although I don't believe money being much of an issue for WWE in general for anything, really. Well, I, it is when it comes to Mania Weekend. Because, I mean, you're going to have to spend more on the union fees, more on the rent. And then you're drawing a lot less people. 
So, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, just media and those stadium shows make so much money. I mean, it was estimated this year on Mania, because we're, you know, we're talking in the pandemic era, they lost approximately $15 million on the gate alone. So that's the death of the XFL. That's again. right. And this time, where it all ended again. And this time it wasn't their fault. No, no, it, it wasn't. I'm still gonna make fun of it. Why not? There you go. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still gonna mock people who thought it was gonna last more than a year. That's what I do. Well, I mean, yeah. And again, though, wasn't their fault. But we'll, you know, the XFL is no more. But we're in Madison Square Garden. Reported attendance of around eighteen thousand for the show. Jim Ross, Jerry Lawler on commentary for Raw. Michael Cole and Taz on commentary for the SmackDown side of things. Yeah, and in general, I think when when you think of commentary teams for Raw and for SmackDown, I think that's who I think of on both sides. Uh, of course, Ross and Lawler on, on Raw for years and years, and Cole and Taz had a really good run on SmackDown for many years. They did. They had good chemistry as well. Yeah, Michael Cole wasn't always... He hasn't always been terrible. No. He's had he's had some good stretches. And right. I would say today he's not the worst. I mean, there is plenty of worse people on their payroll. This is true. So we start off the evening with the WWE United States Championship match. Our champion, The Big Show, facing off with a young man who may have had a future in store for him, John Cena, Steve. The Doctor of Thugonomics coming out and laying the beat down and talking about uh, how Big Show is a gorilla and uh, Big Show might be lacking in certain areas and whatnot. So, you know, it's just a really popular character at the time. And uh, and when you watch it back, I mean, I think it still holds up to some pretty good stuff. Yeah, it's. Uh, I just. I hope that kid makes it one day. I, I hope so. He's He's got a lot of potential, and he was very popular here. Of course, the story of John Cena's, most John Cena's career was the fact that the the fans had this divided reaction. Like some people loved him and some people hated him. And here in WrestleMania 20, opening match against the United States champion, the big show, a big opportunity for Cena. And the crowd is right behind him. They really were. So it was a, a really good atmosphere to open up the show. And at the end of the day, John Cena becomes your new United States champion at just over nine minutes, pinning the big show with the FU, which Obviously, it looks great because Big Show is a, well, he's kind of a giant. He is pretty big at this point as he is in, in most points of his career. So, uh, the good the, the good news, as you mentioned, Steve, was uh crowd was really into Cena. They were really red hot for him. Big Show kind of dominates the match. It comes off as a weird choice for the opener because in terms of in-ring action, it's an okay match. But the big thing here was they were kind of banking on the Cena reaction. They got the Cena reaction. The title change comes off well. Gives Cena his first big WrestleMania win. And um, the whole thing is this was kind of looked at as a launching point for John Cena in terms of becoming a star for the company. And I thought it did a great job of doing that. I mean, you could tell Cena was already getting hot with the people. They really caught on to that uh, Thugonomics character, the rapping and whatnot people were really digging that at the time and uh big show did a pretty darn good job here of uh you know i think that his ideal role in the company was to make guys like john cena and it's kind of funny you know sometimes when they had the ruthless aggression documentary they're talking about the john cena thing and there was apparently this idea that some people didn't want the big show to lose to john cena which 
seems insane to me because that was exactly what the people wanted to see. They wanted to see John Cena win. And I can only assume that the people who were mad at the Big Show for putting over John Cena were people that did not want John Cena to be a big star. Probably. They wanted to be a big star themselves. They could see the writing on the wall. They saw Cena's getting over. They saw he had the charisma. They saw he's going to be a pretty big deal. And they did not want that to happen for that kid. For I don't, I don't know if it's personal reasons. I don't know if it's just the fact that they want to be stars. But uh, it may it may that part of the story is a little bit overblown too. But I do think I think it's a performance that if there were doubters backstage, uh, they ate some crow on this evening. There you go. So we went backstage where Jonathan Coachman meets with Eric Bischoff and Johnny Nitro. Whatever happened to that kid? Oh, no idea. No idea what happened to that guy. Yeah. And for some reason, Eric Bischoff wants Coachman to go find The Undertaker. This led to a Randy Orton, Batista, and Ric Flair promo segment where they were in the staircase at Madison Square Garden, which happened to be the staircase that he knocked fully down back in June. Norton cut a little promo talking about how he kicked shit out of Foley over the last few months and uh, The Rock and the visual of them. Uh, they're standing there in suits and stuff and the promo isn't exactly great, but it's a cool visual and nice throwback to them throwing Foley down the steps. It does tell a good story. I got to tell you that the staircase, the problem with the staircase is it really doesn't look that impressive, but it really jacked Foley up, too, because he insisted on taking the bump regularly, and that didn't work out well for him. And it wasn't even, like, the biggest staircase in the world, either. So that's kind of a tough deal for Mick there. And the one thing that bothered me here, though, you got Randy Orton blabbing on and on, where, and Ric Flair's just standing there. Like, what? What's that about? Yeah. I don't know. So we had the World Tag Team Championships on the line next. Our champions were Rob Van Dam and Booker T defending against the Dudleys, defending against La Resistance, and of course, two of your favorites, Garrison Cade and Mark Jindrak, who got no fucking reaction. Well, there was no reason for them to at this point, or at any other point in their WWE career, to be honest with you. Although, I mean, I thought Garrison Cade did find a better partner later on Trevor Murdoch. That kid team was a little bit better, but... Uh, yeah, not exactly their shot, their uh, high spot here. Of course, La Resistance that, and it was represented by Rene Dupree and Robert Conway here. And uh, we know who the Dudleys are. And Booker T, Rob Van Dam, a tag team I had no memory of. Nor did I have a memory of their awful mismatched theme music. It, was, it wasn't even like the regular Booker T song either. It was like, did they have like a rap CD or something where they like remixed songs or something? Because Booker T was like a rap remix and... Mesh with RVDs. So. It was bad. Yeah, I think it's best that these things are forgotten, along with this match, because the champions retained at about 750 via pin. And it's not a good match. There's a lot of people involved. The Dudleys weren't exactly at the top of their game right in this match. Law Resistance didn't do much, and. Jindrak and Cade looked like really green overall. It's kind of a bad match, honestly. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. It was, uh, you know, there's always been a way to jam a lot of people onto a WrestleMania card. And um, for this show, they decided to have uh, several uh, four-way matches and multi-man matches, things like that. We had uh, this four-way for the tag team titles for Raw. And then there's a SmackDown that's uh, later on in the, in the show. And quite frankly, is you know how Goldberg and Braun Strowman had the same match as Drew McIntyre and Brock Lesnar? Yeah. 
those two tag team titles matches were the same match. That's right. So. <laughs> they were the same match. Booker T RVD gets to get the win, and uh, no, I, I didn't really care about this at all. Jonathan Coachman is now looking for Kane. He hears a bunch of strange sounds in a room, and Mean Gene and Bobby Heenan make a cameo. Yeah. And then they're followed by Mola and Mae Young. So apparently they were fucking in the back. Well, I mean, you got to do something in WrestleMania, right? Well, it was a four and a half hour show this year. so <laughs> Four and a half hours is pretty short by WrestleMania standards these days, let's be honest. Well, these days, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, a, it was a good way to get Mean Gene and Bobby on screen. And, you know, Merle and May are always good for a comedy pop. And, you know, just uh, funny, you know, funny ha-ha stuff. It's, it was good shit, pal. You know. And it actually was good shit. I, I, I thought it was funny. The good news is the show picked up next. We had Chris Jericho versus Christian. And yeah. this entire angle was based off of Jericho and Christian making a bet about trying to date Trish and Lita. Then Jericho started having some feelings for Trish, and Trish ended up fucking fr- friend zoning him. Well, you know, I mean, tough to blame the girl. I mean, the whole thing started off with over a wager. Let's be honest, of one right. is one Canadian dollar too, and yes. I an American dollar. Gentleman's bet of one Canadian dollar. Yeah, so I didn't really blame Trish for giving Jericho the friend zone treatment there because it's not like he had the, the best intentions in mind, and maybe he. Got some better better intentions later on, but you know you got you got to make the guy earn it. I don't blame her. That's right. So this is a really good match that Christian ends up winning at uh, about a little under fifteen minutes. Trish gets involved at the end, and Christian rules him up for the win. And then post match, Trish tries to apologize to Jericho for costing him the match. Christian comes back. And then Trish ends up slapping Jericho. Christian hits the unprettier, and he gets to leave with the girl as they make out. The creepy little bastard. How about the creepy little bastard leaving a Trish dress? Pretty impressive. That's right. Yeah, but I, I, I think it's really good. I thought Jericho played his role really well here. He was a bunch of little things. Like, he was always mad at Christian about the whole situation, holding on to the walls of Jericho for extra time. Trish was really good at the end. And then you have the big angle afterwards where Christian is the dastardly villain that steals the girl. Yeah, it was very, very well done. Pretty solid match with Christian Jericho, as, as you would expect with the two guys involved. They had good chemistry as, as a tag team, good chemistry as opponents, as you would expect. And, of course, the big Trish thing at the end. And, you know, I mean, I, I've always been a Trish fan. What can I say? And she did very well in her role here. Big slap, and we got the evil Trish Stratus, which uh, was one of the highlights of 2004 WWE programming. It really was. She was very good in the role. So Lillian Garcia tries to interview Mick Foley. The Rock shows up and takes over the promo. Um, He makes fun of Hurricane and Rosie, who he called Grimace and the Hamburglar. Damn right. And he hypes up Mick Foley for our next match, which was another really good piece of business. Evolution which was Ric Flair, Batista, and Randy Orton facing off with the Rock and Sock connection, Steve. That's right. Uh, Rock and Sock, one of the memorable tag teams of the Attitude Era. Um, you know, they were Rock and Mick Foley, obviously, you know, two of the top stars of the time. And 
This is all about this match was all about uh, taking the youngsters in evolution. You know, a youngster being a relative term with Batista, of course, but especially Randy Orton is about taking those guys up to the next level with the involvement of the Stars, Rock and Foley and Ric Flair by their side. And uh, it was just it was really good stuff. Rock and Flair were having all kinds of fun out there. You could tell, and uh, it was uh, it was making Batista look good. He had Fo- Foley was uh, all mad at Randy Orton at the time, of course. And it's just eventually Foley gets ready for that claw, but then old Randy Orton hits that RKO and gets that three count. And the biggest win for Randy Orton up till that point. And uh, for a long time, that was The Rock's last match, and he went out on a losing note. Kind of a little bit surprising. Rock's last WWE match for eight years. Eight years, yeah. It's pretty amazing. And. You know, the backstage story, the story behind it is always interesting as well because it kind of spoke to Foley's self-esteem that he didn't think that, the, you know, he didn't think that The Rock thought that this would be a big deal. And Rock was all about it, as you can tell in the interview. You can tell in the work, work in the match, too. He was having a blast. He really was. And it, it's a really good match. The crowd is obviously into it. Um, it was actually way better than I thought at the time. And going back, it's still really good because... You know, Rock and Foley weren't full-time guys at the time. Um, you know, you look at Evolution, Flair is past his prime, but he could still do some Ric Flair things. And Orton and Batista weren't nearly as good as they'd end up being. So it's like, at the time, you didn't kind of expect much, but it ends up being a really good match. Evolution gets the big rub for the win. And this, of course, leads to a fully Orton singles match, which is pretty fucking great later on. Yeah, yeah, that that was at uh, that was at Backlash, I believe. Yes, and I believe that involved some uh, um, barbed wire, possibly things of that nature, and thumb got a little, got a little young crazy. Randall. Some thumbtacks and whatnot. And it's really uh, Mick Foley uh, doing what Mick Foley did during that time period and just uh, making guys. He put Randy Orton on the map, and uh, this was a time period where, believe it or not, and a lot of people might not believe it, I was very interested in Randy Orton at this, at this point. I think a lot of people were, but it's uh, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. I mean, he was he was looking like the next big thing at this point, and and he's had a lengthy, uh, very successful career. But uh, you know, we just personally, I I, I don't really care. But yeah. some people out there do, I'm sure. I mean, and and it's no surprise yeah. that Foley, you know, we've talked about Foley and his ability to elevate others. You yep. look back at Beach Blast with Sting. You look back at the stuff he did with Triple H. He did stuff with Edge at one point. He did stuff with Orton. I mean, Foley was really big into that and did a really good job because that's just that was kind of his rule. I mean, Foley was a star, but he was so good at making others look so really good. And you got to have guys like that in your promotion if you're gonna if you're gonna be a if you're gonna have a successful show. You just have to have some guys like that that are willing to put over next generation of guys. Sometimes, you know, some of these older veterans, if you will, aren't really up for it from time to time. But you need guys like Foley. And I think uh, Jericho has been a guy that's been good at that over the years. Of course, maybe somebody like Dustin Rose as well. You just need those veterans that are willing to give back. I guess Terry Funk would be the main example. Yeah, Terry Funk. Foley looked up to, of course. So, I mean, that's where Foley got from, from watching Terry Funk. Yeah. They announced the the Hall of Fame inductees that that year. we had people like Bobby Heenan, Tito Santana, Don Morocco, Jimmy Snuka, Greg Valentine, and Pete Rose all going in that year. Strong class. One of the best uh, Hall of Fame ceremonies 
I think, it, you know, helped by the fact that it wasn't an arena, to be honest with you. Yeah. They had, like, in some ballroom or something, and just, it came off a lot better that way. It did. And, but, you know, you got, it's one of those things where you can make some money selling tickets, so, you know, it kind of is what it is. But, uh, you know, Bobby Heenan had one of the great speeches of all time, and just, uh, you know, and good to see all these guys out there. We had a match that was very much a match of its time. A Playboy evening gown match. Oh, can you imagine the Playboy evening gown match in uh, WWE since uh, 2008 or so? <laughs> Featuring four lovely women. Miss Jackie, which was, uh, who was that, Steve? Tell everybody. Uh, well, that was Jackie Gata. That's right. And I'll be honest with you because, you know, Sable and Tori come out first. And uh, so, okay, we're watching that and. Well, Sable and Tori. And so then, you know, Miss Jackie's name comes up on the screen. And I was thinking, like, uh, who is this? Is this uh, Jackie Moore? Jacqueline? Is that where we're going? No, it's Jackie Gate. I was like, oh, my God. Yes. Unfortunately, it was not Miss Jackie. I had not thought of Jackie Gate in at least 10 years. Like, she had completely slipped my mind. And uh, she teamed with the woman with all the legs in the world, Stacy Keebler. Now, Stacy, I remember pretty well. Oh, she's hard to forget, Steve. <laughs> Very, very hard to forget indeed. But uh, yeah, I mean, you want to talk about a technical wrestling classic? Yeah, it yeah. was. Um, it was every match of this version ever. It was very much exactly what you would expect from this divas era type thing. It only went two minutes and thirty three seconds, so it wasn't horribly offensive, but it wasn't good either. Um, Sable and Tori won, and um, yeah. I mean, then they mostly, Sable and Tori and Stacy all stripped out her evening gown prior to the match. So, quite frankly, I'm not going to complain about it. There you go. You know, I mean, I was just as happy as Michael Cole and Taz were to call it. I'm sure you were. <laughs> They're having time in their yeah. life, I'll tell you. So, backstage, Eddie Guerrero was firing up Chris Benoit for his world title match later in the evening. Eddie was getting the man jacked up because, you know, if anybody. If anybody needs uh, to be um, um, pep, if anybody needs a pep talk to increase their intensity, it's probably Chris Benoit, right? Exactly. That guy was just never really into anything. He's just kind of, you know, chill, calm. So next up, we had a cruiserweight championship match for the WCW cruiserweight title. It was, I believe, it was listed as still Chavo Guerrero, our champion, versus Akio, Billy Kidman, Funaki, Jamie Noble, Nunzio, Rey Mysterio, Shannon Moore, Tajiri, and Ultimo Dragon, who slipped during his entrance. Ah, yeah, and unfortunately, <laughs> it was edited on the uh, on the network. It was, which is as, a shame. and the shame for Ultimo Dragon is that the only thing the only thing I will remember about his WWE run was uh, him slipping during his entrance to WrestleMania. Do you remember anything else he did there? No, unfortunately not. I mean, I'm sure he had some fine matches because you know Dragon is always a always a fine worker, but you know they they, they just didn't stand out. They were just kind of there. So I assume because I don't remember them. Yeah, this goes about 11 minutes. Chavo ends up retaining the title, and it was just too many fucking dudes to cram into 10 minutes. Like the work was nonstop, but it wasn't exactly good. It felt rushed and. I just don't know why you didn't do, like, Ray and Chavo at the best. Well, another one of those matches where we got to get people on the card. You know, just like those tag team matches. We got to get all the cruiserweights on here that we can. That we can. And 
you know, there's pretty much nonstop action. You had Kidman nearly killed himself trying to do the shooting star instead of four. That was kind of crazy. You had Funaki come in there for like five seconds. That was uh, something. I wasn't even sure Akio even entered the match. I don't think he did. He did he, get, he got in really quick and got rolled up because it was yeah. It must have been really quick because I <laughs> I didn't remember it, but uh, it came down to Chavo and Ray, of course, as you would expect, and of course you'd also expect some help from Chavo Senior to uh, oh good old Chavo Classic helps get Chavo Junior get the win. Shocking results. You gotta love it. Classic Guerrero cheating. It's what they do. So you like it. Up next was a match. Let me tell you this. This is a <laughs> match that goes down in WrestleMania history for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Steve Austin is your special guest referee for a match featuring Bill Goldberg and Brock Lesnar, who were both leaving the company. Yeah. Yeah, it sounded great on it sounded like a great idea on paper. It sounded like one of those, you know, one of those dream matches. You know, you, you got big ass Brock Lesnar, he's been kicking everybody's butt for the last couple of years. Of course, Goldberg has a reputation from WWE's run there everybody in his path. So you got these two unstoppable monsters going against each other. Sounds like a great idea. You got Stone Cold there as a referee. It sounds great, except for the fact that we found out that Goldberg was leaving after WrestleMania. And then we found out that Brock was leaving after WrestleMania too. And uh, yeah, it's just the fans were ready to shit on it. Quite frankly, I mean, there's the fans were not really going to give the song a chance, give the match a chance, to be honest. And uh, they didn't. They probably shouldn't have because the match was terrible. It was. It, it took them about three minutes to finally lock up, and that led to nothing. And uh, most of the match was nothing. Yes, the fans uh, took a giant shit all over this match. They they chanted, you sold out right away. They sang the Hey Hey Goodbye song. And then it broke into, this match sucks. Well, they weren't wrong. I mean, <laughs> they were very accurate. The, the near, Madison Square Garden fans were, were very accurate in their assessment that the match, in fact, uh, sucked. So, it is a bad match. And... They go what seems like a marathon for both men in 2020, 13 minutes and 42 seconds. It felt about 30. It really did. Um, they exchange finishers. Goldberg wins at the end. And there is this moment during this match where Austin and Goldberg have a face-off. Yeah. And all you can think of is, Jesus Christ, if this was 1998... Oh, they'd be swimming and swimming in money. Oh boy, that would've been quite the time for it. But uh, wow, this is—I—I I, I do think if you haven't seen this match, you should watch it, just for the experience, you know, just so you can see what was, and it, what was quite frankly, and you know, there's there's been worse matches. There's been you know worse work rate and some matches and worse performers and whatnot. But uh, for the people involved, for the uh, for the time it is given on television, I think it's, this got to be the worst match in WrestleMania history, doesn't it? It's certainly up there. And here's the Although thing. Although I will say there are, there is one or two from this year that might give it a run for its money. I will say <laughs> that, you know, people will sit there and they say, the match is only looked at as bad because the crowd shit on it. But what those people are forgetting is that it's a really bad and boring match even outside of that. 
It would have been bad if it was in the, on WrestleMania 36 in the empty arena and nobody's saying anything. It's just it wasn't good. It's like Steve said, it's fascinating to watch, to see the crowd turn on them and to see these guys eventually just kind of stop giving a shit during it. Oh yeah, they're both leaving. They're they're already out the door, and you could tell you could tell going in they didn't get it. They had no fucks to give about this match. So None whatsoever. you know, Brock is a, a sad panda after the match. Starts flipping off the fans, flips off Austin, and then he gets hit with a stunner. Austin yep. drinks beer. Goldberg comes in to join him. He gets a stunner as well. So at the end of the day, Vince McMahon got the last laugh. Stone Cold Steve Austin standing tall. We might get, we'll, we'll probably get more into that on the uh, on the Raw recap. We'll save our talk for that uh, at that point. So we had another get everybody on the match card. The WWE Tag Team Championship match. Our champions, Rikishi and Scotty Tuhati. A long-running tag team of over five years, I remember Michael Cole saying. Defending against the APA, the world's greatest tag team, and the Basham Brothers. Doug and Danny Basham. Yes, sir. The uh, the pride of Ohio Valley Wrestling. Um, you know, two of Jim Cornette's favorite people. He he was big on both those guys. The damage. One of the, yeah, the damage. One of the best stories, I mean, one of the best Jim Cornette rants or tirades or whatever you want to call them is uh, the story of how the Basham Brothers got called up and uh, how it pretty much ruined his uh, little storyline that he'd been doing for however long. And how Doug got his head shaved because they wanted to see how he looked bald. <laughs> yeah, that was a. Uh, you know what? For as much as I'll rally against Cornette's bullshit rants most of the time these days, he was obviously in the right during this. Because, that was justified. <laughs> yeah, because OVW, for those that don't know or remember, was a WWE developmental territory. Jim Cornette was in charge of it, Danny Davis. And Doug Basham and the Damager were. The big feud that were carrying OVW. They had tons of TV time and live events and months of that stuff put into it. They had some good matches too because I was down a little bit at the time watching that, watching that TV and they had some good stuff. And on top of them having, obviously it being good, Steve, it was carrying the promotion. And then Vince decides he's going to call them up and make them a tag team and make them brothers. Without even telling Cornette and totally fucks over everything they were doing at OVW. <laughs> So they had the finagulous explanation about how I, uh, the, I think they made John Laurinaitis the heel of course, because as they like to do, where I guess the only way that Danny or Damage could get a contract with WWE was if he agreed to be Doug's brother. But that didn't really explain the part of why Doug shaved his head. I don't know. I think we just assumed, I think we just want maybe nobody would notice. I don't know. <laughs> oh man, and. Boy, those two guys, once they got called up, they went nowhere fast. Uh, we had a run with Linda Miles of Shaniqua, and there was uh, um, bondage involved. It was, it was a bad time. It was very odd. So the good news is it was kept short at six minutes. Scotty and Rikishi retained. It wasn't bad. I would call it okay because it didn't overstay its welcome, but it was obviously not good. It's pretty much the same match as the Raw match, more or less, and a similar result with the uh, makeshift tag team partners retaining, and you had a couple of green tag teams in there. I, I may not fair call Haas and Benjamin green, but they they were not quite at their peak yet at this point, and you had the APA even in Dudley Boys' role. There you go. So we had a um, 
Another title match coming up here, the WWE Women's Championship, a hair versus hair match <laughs> as Victoria defended against Molly Holly. If Molly wins, she gets the title. If she loses, she gets her head shaved. And According to the story, Molly Holly offered up this idea for the match to ensure that not only she would get on the show, but the women's title would actually get on the show because without it, they were basically going to be involved in an evening gown match without the title from all reports. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it makes sense. And I, and at the time, I was a big fan of Victoria. Victoria had also come up through OVW and she would, uh, got onto TV as the psycho kind of character. Really digging her act at that, during that time period. And I was excited about her as women's champion. And I remember being excited about this match, too, because I, I thought the program was doing okay. And I thought, the, you know, hair versus title pretty interesting. And boy, was this a disappointment. <laughs> Yeah, and the problem is, is the reason it's disappointed has nothing to do with the work. They worked really hard. The problem is, they only got just under five minutes. Yeah, that was part so of the problem. It's completely rushed. It was rushed, and the fans weren't really feeling it. And to be honest, uh, JR and King weren't really feeling it either. And uh, Jerry Lawler launched into a discussion about Molly Holly's granny panties and JR was completely flabbergasted, and pretty much everybody watching was flabbergasted as well. Yeah, Jerry Lawler was an asshole. Shock. Yeah, and, uh, you know, as, as much as, as good a worker as Molly Holly was, and her stuff still holds up pretty well, uh, the, I always kind of had a problem getting into her character because, quite frankly, uh, she, was a, she was a joke for most of her heel run. At least she was treated as a joke by the announcers and by everybody surrounding her. I mean, as good as her work was, it was tough to get really into it because, you know, granny panties and just bullshit like that. Yeah. Um, I thought it was okay. I didn't hate it. I was just disappointed because I know both are capable of way more and they got shorted on time. And like you said, commentary wasn't into it. The crowd didn't really care. Victoria retains her championship, which, which leads to Molly Holly getting her head shaved. Yeah. <laughs> it was a thing that happened. I mean, and God bless Molly for agreeing to do it, is all I can, is all I can say about that. But, uh, yeah, and the haircutting was, was awkward as well because you still had they, – they showed the clips. They, they did the re- video recap for the next match. And when the entrances for next match started, Molly was still sitting there getting her head shaved. It was pretty awkward. It really was. But that's okay, Steve, because things picked up after that. It was not exactly your classic arena Mexico hair versus hair match. It wasn't, but things picked up, Steve, because we had the WWE Championship match, one Eddie Guerrero defending against a gentleman you guys may have heard of, Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle, I believe. Didn't he win some kind of sporting athletic competition at some uh, point? He won uh, some, some kind of professional grappling, amateur grappling years, event? Several years prior to this, yeah. I believe he won some big-time big competition, which got him noticed by a, a couple people. I, I believe he also won that event with, I believe, a pulled hamstring. A, pull, a pulled hamstring. Which, very very uh, minor injury. Well, you know, he got out of bed and he pulled his hamstring, but you know it happens. That's right. So this is Eddie and Kurt. This is when Kurt can obviously, he's still delivering at Kurt Angle levels. Mm-hmm. And this is Eddie Guerrero being Eddie Guerrero. Yep. And yeah. left to their own devices to put on a great match with no bullshit. 
Shock of shocks, they went a little over 21 minutes and had a fucking excellent wrestling match. Huh. I know you're shocked here. Who would have guessed? And then the best part is not only is it excellent, but we even get an Eddie Guerrero finish as he had loose, his boot was loosened. Kurt Angle went for the ankle lock, but Eddie slipped out of his shoe and small packaged him with his feet on the ropes to score the win. Well, you know, that is all accidental. I mean, Eddie had to unlace his shoe to stop the swelling from that ankle lock that Kurt Angle had him in for several minutes. So, you know, he had to loosen the shoe a little bit, get feeling back in the ankle. And, uh, you know, old Kurt just had go back to say, you know, Kurt Angle was. He always had to go back the same move over and over again. That's just how he worked at that time during the time period. And when you know it, he just happens to y- accidentally yank the shoe off. And Eddie rolled Angle up and, well, made he's a little close to the ropes. These things happen from time to time. It's a small ring. It's only 20 by 20, Steve. Right. They're, and they're really, close to, they're really close to the ropes. And Eddie just happened to be over there. And he was trying to hold on to something to keep the cradle on. So, you know, I mean, yeah, these things happen. So. Eddie Guerrero is. I've never seen Eddie Guerrero break a rule. No, 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 no. Of course may not. Stretch, may stretch one time or two, but I've never seen him break one. That's right. So, I mean, I love this match. I think it's absolutely excellent. They do a really good job of making Kurt Angle look really dominant while having Eddie have to kind of go into his bag of tricks to outsmart him at the end. And it plays well because of the way Kurt keeps going after the ankle lock. And he figures out how, how to overcome that. But then you just look at the body of the match. I think the overall, like, the grappling slash chain wrestling stuff, all the counter work, the false finishes, they have a great atmosphere and a really good story. I think it, like, it clicks all the boxes for me. I absolutely love this match. And it's it's just an excellent piece of business, man. And it makes everybody kind of remember why you loved both of these guys at the time. And without a doubt, on most of the WrestleMania cards, this would have been a match of the night, without question. There you go. So, But uh, may not this particular evening, but, I mean, it's, it's debatable, though. It's debatable. So next up, unfortunately, things did not stay excellent. We had Kane versus The Undertaker. A rematch from WrestleMania 14. Yeah, and this and, is the return of The Undertaker as the dead man because Kane had buried him at the Survivor Series. It was also a rematch of like every pay-per-view in between WrestleMania 14 and WrestleMania 20, it felt like. Well, this, they had is, a few this is true, too. I'm just talking in terms of WrestleMania rematches. but Well, yeah, true, because we only remember Undertaker WrestleMania matches at this point. That's right. So, I like the WrestleMania 14 match. I find it very enjoyable, and it does a great job of setting up Kane for what was to come. This match fucking sucked. It only goes about eight minutes, but it sucked. You know what? The work rate, I'll give you that the work rate was bad. There's nothing there. It's it kind of tough to watch as far as the actual wrestling goes. But as far as freaking Paul Bear making this comeback and The Undertaker come back as a dead man, badass entrance... You know, he's out there doing his classic stuff. I mean, as far as the show goes, I enjoyed it at the time, and I think it still kind of holds up as far as, like, you know, being a classic Undertaker appearance. The match wasn't good. I'll give you that. I mean, you know, Undertaker versus Kane was was what it was, but uh, it set the stage for Undertaker coming back as a dead man and, uh, you know, kind of his character for next next several years there. So, 
you know, I mean, match sucked, but a fun show. I'll tell you, I will agree that presentation-wise, yes, that is really cool. But, yeah, it's just the match is... Yeah, it's always good to see Paul Bear. This is true. Yeah, I always, always like seeing that guy. So we head to the World Championship match, which was set up at the Royal Rumble as Shawn Michaels and Triple H had wrestled to a draw. Triple H was the champion. Chris Benoit won the Royal Rumble and earned his... Uh, top spot, and then he came and joined Raw and wanted Triple H's world title. Shawn Michaels wasn't done with Triple H, though, and he gets himself into this match. So, despite history telling you that it's Triple H, Shawn Michaels, and Stevie Richards, it's actually Chris Benoit. <laughs> I, I, it was listed as a Triple H defending the World Heavyweight title. It was what I saw. That's right. And the thing is, is this was a culmination of a journey for Chris Benoit and his fan base. While he did, quote-unquote, win the, w, the WCW world title, he leaves right after that, and because that was just a move to try to get him to stay. He was never booked as the top guy. Everybody always wanted to see him get that chance. And in WWE, people thought that he might never get that chance because Vince, no matter how jacked up he got, Vince still looked at him as a smaller guy. And he had the stigma of being a WCW guy, and, you know, Vince doesn't let that shit rest. No, he still doesn't. So, they have this match, Steve, and in all honesty, even going back to watching it this day, I think it's an absolutely amazing WrestleMania main event. It it definitely holds up, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's, uh, you know, three guys going out there. And I will give Triple H and Shawn Michaels credit for both their performances in this match. They they did everything they could to put Benoit over. They really did. They were both they're both bleeding buckets. They're both selling their asses off. They were doing everything they could to make that guy. They really did. And you had a hot crowd from this. All three guys putting in an amazing effort, as you said. Hunter and Shawn working really hard to put Benoit over on route to victory, which happened at just under twenty five minutes. I, I just, there's so many, like, kind of little things throughout. I, like, Sean and Triple H renewing the rivalry and keeping it going. Benoit has to make the big comeback performance. Um, the crowd just so into Benoit the whole time. Jim Ross, back when he was still great, adding another level and commentary to this match. And many few could at that level during the time. And, of course, at the end, this isn't one of those cheap outs where... Shawn Michaels takes the loss and Triple H is protected as a champion. Benoit makes Triple H tap out. Yep. And it's the big moment that a lot of fans wanted, Steve, that Chris Benoit wanted, that I know I at the time as a Chris Benoit fan absolutely wanted. And the night culminates in a almost perfect thing for fans like us, Steve, is Chris Benoit is in tears as he's handed the title Eddie Guerrero shows up. They celebrate together in a sea of confetti. And for a while, it was one of the most pure and wonderful and just happy moments in wrestling history. It was. And, uh, well, we know what happened from there. Let's try not get into that too much. But uh, And the Fed, the fans in Madison Square Garden, which I thought the fans were pretty darn good all night, but they were... They were ready to see Benoit win that title. They're behind him the whole time. 
which is saying something because, you know, Shawn Michaels is a pretty popular guy back in his day, too. People like that guy just a little bit. And Shawn is a little bit over, wasn't he? I've heard of that Shawn guy. People seem to like him. Yeah, people seem to like him a little bit. But, uh, yeah, people are really behind Chris Benoit. They want to see him win the title. Uh, you know, they they wanted to see that guy get that moment. And uh, for him to get that at the expense of Triple H and Shawn Michaels, it was just, uh, you know, it was something that a lot of people didn't think they'd ever see. And I know, it's had into a lot of us still didn't think we we're gonna see it. And I, you know, on obviously, I mean, in terms of this event, not in real life, please. So don't get this confused. <laughs> the real shame of what came afterwards is that the moment at the end is ruined for almost everybody because there were people that were so into that ending. And then this is one of the greatest, it's either the greatest or one of the greatest WrestleMania main events in history, depending on how you look at it. It's one of WrestleMania's greatest matches. And unfortunately now, because of what Benoit did, people don't like to talk about it. Yeah, you really can't include it in like this WrestleMania video packages that they like to do all the time. You can't really include this yeah. without, you know, people feeling kind of creeped out. And, uh, the fact that, you know, both Benoit Guerrero were dead within three years of this is just, ugh. And I think the other thing I want to do is, in, in full credit to everybody involved, how many times do we see a WrestleMania main event get dumped on because fans aren't interested and they're dead tired? Uh-huh. And people will say, oh, well, it's just because the show was long, you know. Every, anybody, any match get crept on because the show was just too long. At the, you know, people say that. But for this time frame, Steve, a four-and-a-half-hour WWE show was unheard of. Yeah, so people, the crowd should have been tired, theoretically. That's what people tell me. But they weren't because you had stellar performances from all three guys and the culmination of a moment that had been built up over the... Not just years or months but benoit's whole career yeah it and was then all you, building to that. i'm sorry but and then you close with that moment with eddie which again for years was just such a pure wonderful moment but yeah. but yeah and, and then uh life got in the way as it as it does from time to time but uh as far as rest me at 20 goes as an overall show Yes, I thoughts? will say that there were some tremendous high points. You know, the main event, the Eddie Eddie and the ankle match was a tremendous match. You had the uh, the Undertaker return came off really well, even if the match stunk. So there were some, and you know, John Cena being made a star early on, Rock and Sock and Evolution killing it. So the, there were some really great moments on the show, and there were some stuff that just kind of filled time. Just, <laughs> I mean, gave people time to go to the bathroom. You had one of the worst matches in WrestleMania history. I mean, talk about a show that has some of the highest highs and some of the lowest lows the show did. But uh, as far as an overall grade, I'd, I'd give it probably a solid, uh, I'd probably have to go 7.5 or so, somewhere around there. Yeah, in terms of you look at the overall show, like I said, there's a lot of stuff that really didn't need to be there. But you get the John Cena moment at the beginning, which was a sign of big things. You got the Undertaker return moment, which the moment in presentation I will give you and I agree with is really cool. And it feels like a mania moment. And then you have Christian and Jericho, which is really good. Evolution and uh, Rock and Sock, which is really good. So those are all qual quality stuff there. Eddie and Angle is absolutely excellent. 
And the only reason that it's not remembered as the best match on the show is because you had that triple threat that closed it out. So, again, like you said, the highs are really high. There are some really good moments. I think I agree with you because I don't think I can go higher than a 7-5 because there is so much down and there is some bad. But I think as a complete package, if you're looking at it in the time frame, because you can't just look at it through complete 2020 eyes, because at the time, this show felt so awesome and so important, especially with that closing moment. It really felt like, uh, you know, it felt like the tagline where it all begins again was actually accurate. It did. So I would probably go fully now looking through to the 2020 eyes. I'm going to have to go about a 7.5. And that's because of, like, you just have trash. Like, Taker and Kane as a match is bad. Um, Goldberg and Lesnar is bad. The tag matches aren't good. So that brings it down. So I'd go a 7.5. And out of curiosity, I'm looking up the cage match score. The cage match score for this is actually an 8.4. Oh, well, because uh, they're going with the high points. They're they're kind of ignoring Brock and Goldberg and some of that other stuff. I can I can see where people do that. And I'm sure the they've probably been... I mean, cage match you know, has been around for a very long time, so that probably includes... A bunch of scores from before 2007. Exactly. So, where probably everybody's giving 9 and 10, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's WrestleMania 20, Steve. It's all wrapped up. So, we have to go to WWE Monday Night Raw on the following evening. And we start off with the Triple H opening promo. Because, of course, we do. Because it's 2000, if it's 2003 or 2004, it's Monday Night Raw, you are starting off with the Triple H promo. That's just how it goes. Yes. The gist of the promo is he's upset that he lost, questions the legitimacy of the belt making somebody the best when, you know, the it's the man that makes somebody the best, which was quite ironic at the time because there were people <laughs> bitching about his title run. Claims he lost two on one. And uh, what if it was one-on-one would have been a different story. Chris Benoit interrupts, and he basically mocks Triple H with his shiny new faceplate on the belt that has his name on it. Said that Triple H was going to keep tapping in all future matches between them. Benoit lays him out with the belt. Evolution tries to attack, but Shawn Michaels makes the save, leading to Eric Bischoff booking a tag team match Teddy Long style. Benoit and Shawn facing off with Evolution later in the night. Holla, holla, holla. And it, of course, is the three-on-two handicap match because, well, I mean, they're a team last night as well, so why why not? It was a Triple H promo, you know, and it, it did lead to something, which is a nice change of pace at the time. And it's also interesting that, uh, you know, Raw took place in East Rutherford instead of, you know, again, we're not in the same arena for like five nights. That's right. We were in East Rutherford, New Jersey for this show. Good old New Jersey, always a popular destination. So we had women's tag team action up next. Victoria and Lita versus Jazz and Molly Holly. And I just want to marvel at the genetics of Molly Holly, whose <laughs> hair had majestically grown back in thicker and fuller and even more blonder than the night before. Yeah, apparently she grew a beard on her on her chin. She had some chin chin hair going, too. Black chin hair, which is kind of a strange look. So, just but, a, I mean, an amazing feat. 
lot, a lot of stuff going on there. Is uh, I was kind of surprised to see Lita because you know Lita was nowhere to be seen the night before. It's like oh she's still there, cool. That's right. So Victoria and Lita end up winning this match in about three minutes, and you know the 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 problem I had with this was is you know we're joking about the Molly Holly hair thing. She was working the famous wig gimmick. Yep. Which and, every heel does. And the whole point of the wig gimmick is to draw it out to a point where a valiant babyface rips it off for the reveal to mock the heel. That didn't happen. Not the first night after the fucking shaving angle. <laughs> uh, I thought they brought back Vince Russo book this thing. You know, I mean, the way they ran through the storyline was uh, something. They... And it gives it gives you no time to even try and care about it. That's right. So it is. So, and it is a typical. Unfortunately for these women, you know, three minutes for tag match was pretty much what they got at this point. Yeah, wasn't exactly a good wrestling match, but you know, not all their fault again. You can only do so much in three minutes. Well, Chris Jericho was pretty. Chris Jericho's match didn't go three minutes. He was he was not a happy camper, Chris Jericho. No, Chris Jericho was uh, all rage-filled following the night before. Had a match with uh, young Matthew Hardy here. Something something we'll never see again. V1. No, we'll never see Matt Hardy and Chris Jericho in the same place again, I don't think. And uh, uh, the Matt fact uh, told us the match was ridiculously underrated. There you go. Which at that point might have been accurate. So they kind of have like a short slugfest here, which leads to Chris Jericho getting pissed off. Chokes out Matt with a cable and gets disqualified in about two minutes and ten seconds. Now hold on, Chris Jericho just told me told us on this week's episode of Dynamite that he never cheats. I didn't say he cheated. I said he choked him out with a cable because Matt obviously angered him. Oh, Probably okay. brought up the Trish thing. That's just cold blooded. Yeah, well, you know, Matt is the kind of person to do that sort of thing. I I can't speak for Matt Hardy as far as his uh, integrity and uh, you know his his. Uh, his tendency to talk smack. How the how that goes. I I don't know. I'm sure Jericho is justified. So uh we got a Randy Orton challenging Mick Foley to a upcoming singles match. And then Sylvain Grandier, along with his poodle Fifi, yes. rejoined Law Resistance. And I'm always I've always been curious, Steve, who do you think offered more to Law Resistance? Sylvain Grandier or Fifi? I think they missed the opportunity of Fifi the Poodle. I, th- I think they could have done some more stuff with that. Yeah. People love wrestling pets. You know, I mean, it brought back fond memories of Matilda, you know, the, the British Bulldog's Bulldog. So I thought they kind of missed the boat with Fifi. They could have done a lot more there. This led to Steve Austin becoming annoyed with them, and because he's like the sheriff, he wrote them a ticket. <laughs> well, why not? They were... Why not? They were they were not too happy about that either. Renee did not look pleased. So we got Kane killing Val Venus in under a minute next. Yeah, um, that was uh, that was something. That was the uh, Libertarians meeting up, I guess. But uh, Val <laughs> Venus was Val Venus was doing his towel gimmick when he had they had, they had a fan, a lovely young fan there, removing the towel and uh, wanting to do some things to Val. I did not. Uh, I not. I not get the identity of that young lass. Uh, she seemed like an interesting character. Was not wholesome family entertainment. It was not wholesome family entertainment, but you know, Kane cut that all off and killed Valvinus. So I mean, yeah, it, Kane was not a happy camper either. I guess he had a bad night night before or something. I don't know. 
I'll tell you, it wasn't quite the wrestling match as the, like the next wrestling match was. So we had Jackie versus Stacy. It was not, and once again, it was, it was not Jackie Moore, which, oh, could you imagine? Poor Stacy against Jackie Moore. Oh, man, that would have been a rough night. It would have been bad Stacey. news for Stacy. Stacy, I think Stacy might have uh, left the building if she was put against Jackie Moore, let's be honest. So <laughs> I think a lot of us would. <laughs> they were, yeah, I, I want no part of the Pride of Tennessee myself. No, well, not, at not all. in that way. You know, back well, in her, no. back in her day, Miss Jacqueline was fine. Oh no, no doubt about that. <laughs> I mean, but uh, she'd beat the shit out of you. So, but this is gonna be a technical wrestling classic, and they got off to a real, real good start. And I thought it was gonna be, I thought it was gonna be getting pretty close in star rating territory to that triple threat from WrestleMania. I thought it was gonna be pretty close. But Vince McMahon ruined your party, Steve, because he came out and called Damn off it. the match. Damn it. Damn it, Vince. I mean, my God, how dare he come out and ruin this, uh, just this catch-as-catch-can uh, exhibition between two of the top young wrestlers in WWE at the time. I mean, I don't know what the hell he's doing. So Vince decides it's time to shake things up. I want new stars and new matches, damn it. So there's going to be <laughs> a, a lottery next week, yeah, allegedly. Yeah. With everybody going in and an all-new roster for both shows. Yeah, why Which not? Which was fine because the rosters were getting a bit stale at this time, so it made sense. Well, yeah, it, it did make sense until they actually did it. <laughs> so we got an Evolution talking uh, promo segment backstage where they were upset about potentially being split up. Yeah, they're trying to take up with Eric Bischoff. I don't know what I don't know what control they thought Bischoff had over it. It's pretty obvious that uh, nobody tells Vince McMahon what to do. Let's be honest. Goddamn right. So the, Goddamn, Ford government doesn't do that. This is true. So the Raw Tag Team titles were on the line next. Booker T and Raw Van Dam defending against the Dudley Boys. Yeah. They got 18 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure why that happened, but uh, I guess they had some time to kill on the show is all I can tell you. I mean... Which kind of makes you, why, why didn't Vince shave a few minutes off this match would be my question. Now I'm thinking about it. I don't know. And it's it's really weird. This match was, like, odd. It starts off and the work is, like, really ugly. It improved slightly when the Dudleys took the heat on RVD for what seemed like forever. But then it just kind of ended up awkward as they retained... And, you know, Booker ends up hitting the bookend to finish it. And it's, it was okay, I guess, but felt just really long. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah. This was, and this was not the time period where you saw a lot of long TV matches where, you know, nowadays it seems like every TV match goes about 20 minutes because you got three hours of Raw to fill. But, uh, yeah, this definitely stood out at the time and not in a particularly fantastic way. And I was trying to get my Dudley Boys timeline straight because I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure where they were. Because I had thought earlier that this led to them splitting up, but then I remembered, no, that split up was earlier because Devon was with Batista as the, as the reverend. And so that obviously happened a long time before. So I really have no idea what they're doing at this point. I don't, Nor do I, I, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I really care, to be honest with you, but uh, not, not really sure what they're doing. So after the match, Christian and Trish beat the shit out of Spike Dudley. Well, he had it coming. And I don't then, know why he had it coming, but he probably had it coming. Christian, quote-unquote, pins him on the floor as evil sexy Trish makes the count. 
Yes. She said it was all Jericho's fault uh, for the bet in the first place, especially because it was for a Canadian dollar. And, uh, you know, all I got to say is, God damn, Trish Stratus. My, yes. my word. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's tough to argue with Christian's logic here. I mean, Jericho made that silly, that silly bet, and then he wants to act like he's this, you know, caring individual. And as Christian explained, Trish does not want a nice guy. He, she wants somebody a little rough. So that's why the creepy little bastard is there because he's Christian is a little bit rough with the with the ladies apparently. There you go. So it's probably more information than we need. To be honest with you, but eh, whatever. Sylvain Grandier is grooming his poodle Fifi. Yes. Rob Conway tries to talk some sense into them, and then Rene Dupree is the voice of reason, and he's going to show Steve Austin that he can't mess with the French. This just oh, seems like a bad idea all around. Yeah, it seemed like a bad idea all around, and you could kind of tell that uh, Robert and Sylvain realize it's a bad idea, too, because uh, they're happy to let Rene go out there and show Steve Austin what for while they hung out backstage with Fifi and made sure you know, she, she was taken care of. Rene Dupree... So, Rene, not the, not the brains the operation. Yes, Rene Dupree arrives in the ring. He has words for Steve Austin, tells him he's French and to look at me. He starts speaking in French, and that's when apparently Steve Austin gets pissed off. Well, Steve Austin doesn't understand French. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're French. Barely understands English. Steve Austin arrives with his ATV, drives around the ring, hits a stunner, and that's it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what what that was all about. Um I do remember that uh, shortly after this would have been when uh, the La Resistance, when Rene got moved over to SmackDown, I believe, and then Robert and Sylvain were the tag team. And they were from Quebec instead of France at that point. There you go. So we have the main event of Chris Benoit and Shawn Michaels facing off with Batista, Ric Flair, and Randall Orton, Steve. Yes. You know, I mean, uh, Evolution coming off the big win at WrestleMania over the Rock and Sock Connection. Now they're going up against, you know, two of the top stars that are, you know, regulars and whatnot. So, you know, they, they get off to a pretty good start. And, uh, you know, the, it leads to, uh, I couldn't believe that Mick Foley came down in his red flannel, his red sweatpants. He looked very red, Larry. Looked very red. He was very red. Very red. He came out, he attacked Orton. And it's kind of ridiculous. It became a two-on-two match. What the hell? That's not fair. Not fair anybody involved. Of course, Triple H was down there anyway, so he's still doing some stuff. He even took off his arm sling, even though his arm still looked like it was bothering him. But so he had to do the pedigree because it's, he's got to do a pedigree. I don't know. Well, it's Triple H in the 2000s. He's got to hit that pedigree on everybody, brother. Yep. All I know is that eventually it leads to, uh, you know, the Batista trying to hit that the Batista bomb, but Benoit takes him down, puts on the sharpshooter, and a, I don't remember Chris Benoit winning many matches that sharpshooter, but he did here. Nice win over Batista, and you know the champion going over makes a little bit of sense, I suppose, right? And they're also kind of building up this issue between Benoit and Michaels. Michaels want to be a next uh, contender, and uh, yeah, pretty good stuff, pretty decent stuff. I wouldn't say it was like it wasn't like a classic or anything, but it was, uh Perfectly fine TV wrestling main event. Yeah, it was, it was an enjoyable main event. Again, it was about setting the stage, but this Raw is kind of weird because it's the fallout from Mania, but at the same time, they almost aren't building anything because they're going to be doing the lottery the next week. But the good news is is they were continuing the Orton-Foley issue. 
They were continuing the issues between Benoit, Triple H, and Michaels. And, I mean, it's it's an overall, I'd call, solid show coming out of Mania. Yeah, it was it was fine, I would say. It wasn't like, you know, we, we talk about some of these classic Rawls after Mania. I don't think this really falls into that category, but it's a, a decent little show. And there's one point I wanted to harp on that I forgot to mention during the uh, during that segment with uh, Steve Austin being being up with Rene Dupree. And I don't know if Rene Dupree was a man who had a lot of. I mean, he had a good. Dupree had a good look. He was very young, so there might have been some potential there. And I guess the idea was that you know just by interacting with Stone Cold Steve Austin, Rene Dupree would get over. And uh, Larry, did that happen? No. No. And. Didn't that kind of become a trend with Steve Austin for years and years and it years? It became a trend thought, with a lot of guys. Like Eric Rowan was allegedly going to get over by working that six-second match with the Rocket Mania. Yeah, so it, yeah, it's kind of emblematic of a problem that WWE has had forever, where basically they think, well, you know what? We can have the legends come out and beat up our young or newer guys or whatever. They'll just get over by the association. I mean, you know, just like you know those guys. What's their name? Dax and uh, Dax and Cash that just left WWE. Remember that uh, Raw episode where they're they're just to be being elevated by getting beat up by you know the, the 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 club and by DX and all those guys, right? They were supposed to put them over. Yep, like when The Rock would pop in and he laid out Rusev that one night. Like, oh, Rusev's gonna be over because of The Rock. Yeah, and and people still claim this. Too. There's still fans that say that's actually gonna happen and. I have not seen, you know, I've I've never seen a young star that just got the shit beat out of them by a legend, and you know, I've never seen that actually get anybody over. Well, because yeah, and the big point is, is because that that younger dude never gets one over on him. Yeah, what did Rene Dupree do after this? If I recall correctly, I believe he got moved to SmackDown, and I think he uh, might have done some stuff there, but they really didn't. Uh, and there, he never interacted with Austin again, and there was never really indication that they thought anything of him. I don't know. It's weird, dude. I He's don't like 12 know. years old at the time, too. He had a lot. <laughs> I mean, Dupree is young. He was very young, and he had a good look and had some upside, but for whatever reason, that just uh, never happened for him. There you go, man. So that's... um. That is I had the, to get it off my chest. <laughs> no, that's fine. Dude. That's good. That's why we're here. But that is the Raw after WrestleMania, Steve, and... WrestleMania 20, and that's a a look back into a time that, you know, WrestleMania 20 and coming out of it, there was a lot of positivity, a lot of hope with Eddie and Chris holding the titles, and a lot of fond memories to look back on that didn't end up lasting as memories to look back on because of what happened. Yeah, and as far as the title runs go, of course, you know, Eddie's career has lasted for a couple more months before he lost to JBL. And uh, people certainly have their opinions on the JBL title run. I mean, we might cover that at some point. We might not. And uh, as far as Benoit goes, Benoit was still champion until SummerSlam where he lost to Randy Orton. But he he quickly became kind of a second banana, kind of a almost kind of like a mid-card world champion because the main issue on Raw that was presented every week was uh, Shawn Michaels and Triple H, which led to... Uh, uh, the Bad Blood 2004 show I attended with the longest and most boring Hell in a Cell match that I can remember that I think might still be going on. People will try to convince you that that's an all-time great Hell in a Cell match. Those people are not your friends. 
<laughs> you know, when I was I was there live and I saw it, and I gotta tell you, it, it kind of worked for me live. Maybe it's just, you know, just like the mystique of seeing the you know the giant hell in the cell thing is it, pretty cool. But then you know when you watch it back later on, man, there's just a lot of them doing nothing. <laughs> You got the shit end of the Hell in a Cell. You got to watch that one. Meanwhile, I, I was live for Foley and Taker. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, anything else to add on these shows or the time frame, Steve? Um, no, no, not particularly. I mean, I thought, as much as Triple H and Shawn Michaels became the focal point of Raw, it seemed like at this point they really did all they could to establish Chris Benoit as the top guy. And um, I'm not quite sure what happened to change their mind on that at that particular time. There you go. So, But that'll uh, wrap up this portion. And uh, I want to thank Steve as always. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We're going to move on to the next segment of the show. All right. Welcome back to the closing segment of the show. And if you've listened to the early part of the show already, obviously, uh, Steve and I, we talked about WrestleMania 20 and we talked about Raw the night after and also, as we were talking about these shows, we kind of talked about our our early times in internet writing before we got the 411. And we talked about the website, and we talked about people that helped us out back then. And when we were done with those shows, Steve and I talked, we were like, you know what, we should go ahead and do Backlash 2004 as well, the follow-up. So we agreed to do that, and then we decided we we're going to have a special guest on. And we talked about our life pre-411. We talked about the the Wrestling Talks franchise. We talked about Lino, the Undertaker fan. And we also talked about Trent the Penguin. And at this time, I'm glad to tell everybody that Trent the Penguin is joining us to talk Backlash 2004. Trent, how are you? I am doing fantastic, Larry. Thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? I'm good, man. I'm We're good. Here. We're here, man. Mm-hmm. We're surviving. You're here. You're here. Sur- surviving, socially distant, as an acceptable measure and all that. Great. Well, I mean, we can go out, and I've been told we can go out again, go and have, have parties and rallies and whatnot, so I think we're all good. I'm on my way to a beach in Florida myself, so. There you fun. go. Meet you there. <laughs> 2004, gentlemen, back uh, when I was in my early 20s, which I can assure you felt different than my uh, my late 30s feel now. That That is 100% for sure. Yeah, I think some things have changed for you, Trent. Yeah, yeah. If uh, if any of the listeners happen to hear a little bit of a background noise, uh, she's seven months old. I'm doing the best I can here, guys. <laughs> uh, there you have it. We all have we all have various background noise things to deal with. It is what it is. And no, there was not that type of background noise back in the day, because as part of the lead up to the backlash show, in between WrestleMania back and backlash, WWE touring around. Um, the Raw brand made their way over to Cape Girardeau, Missouri, the Show Me Center. I know, Trent, uh, you've been to many events at the Show Me Center, right? Been to quite a few. Been to quite a few. Quite a few. This one drew uh, 3,400 people, as a matter of fact. I don't know if that's a Show Me Center record or not. Uh, well, if you if you recall, uh, spoiler alert, we might have been there. It, it, it was not sold out, to say the least. <laughs> it was not a sellout crowd. It was a nice, it was a nice long line outside. I, I remember that with uh, some wonderful folks uh, who are all about the professional wrestling. And I thought it'd be fun, and Larry will probably indulge us here, if we just uh, took a quick look at that card, which is kind of a snapshot of what, what was going on dur- on Raw during the time, which I think yeah, makes this, sense, right? This this is the first meeting uh, in person of 
the incomparable Steve Cook and uh, the old school guy from back in the day, Trent the Penguin. So this this was a fun time to be had for sure. I had a car that I trusted to make it to Cape Girardeau, which I cannot say the same today. <laughs> I wouldn't trust my car and make it to Indianapolis, <laughs> much less Missouri. But uh, quite a, a lot of luminaries on the show, Larry. You missed out. We had uh, some good good action. I thought the opener uh, was pretty good. Uh, Tajiri going against Matt Hardy, starting off with uh, two uh, two recognizable names, two people we know pretty well, and Tajiri was the new guy on Raw, and he got the win, and. You know, Matt doing the job like he usually did at, at that during that time period. But trying to remember that being a perfectly fine wrestling match. One of the only things I remember from this March 27th, 2004 show was that it was a really hot opener with Matt Hardy and Tajiri. And I'm looking at the card here. A lot of this stuff in the middle, I got no clue about, man. Don't remember none of it. But I remember that being a pretty damn fine wrestling match. It was. As you expect with uh, Tajiri, Matt Hardy, two uh, top workers, especially during that time period. I do remember the second match, uh, Garrison Cade pitting Eugene with an elbow drop off top. And the main thing I remember is because, you know, Eugene had, not, had yet to be on television. Uh, we hadn't seen him before. You asked me who it was, and I said it. And, well, it looks like, uh, it kind of looks like Nick Dinsmore let himself go. And sure enough, that is Nick Dinsmore, and he kind of let himself go at that point. One of, if not the first appearance of Eugene. And, yeah, I just recall that whole match you saying, that does, Nick Dinsmore more looks better than that. That's not Nick Dinsmore. Who is this guy? Well, Seriously. turns out he had the disheveled hair. It looked like it looked like he put on a few pounds. I wouldn't. I mean, it looked like I thought it was May's weird brother or something. But sure enough, it was Nick Dinsmore working a gimmick, which we will get to during the Backlash show. And uh, I, so I remember that. I don't remember Chuck Palumbo or Rob Conway being there, but Palumbo got the win, so good for that. Allegedly, Sheldon Benjamin had matched the horseshoe don't remember any of that now Kane versus Rhino do you remember anything about that Trent <coughs> the only thing I remember about Kane versus Rhino is that uh, we looked over to the entrance ramp where Kane was and we were far from it I'd actually a different corner of the ring um, in like the first or second row and Kane's head was just like a foot and a half above everybody else in the show me center literally the only thing I remember about that Kane was very popular, um, even though he was a heel at the time. The part I remember was uh, when Rhino finally got some offense in this match, which uh, he didn't get a lot of it. Uh, Rhino's kind of hawking up, if you will. And uh, you and I started yelling, gore, 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 like we're Paul Heyman. And Rhino looks over at us, gives us a look, like, yeah, there we go. And sure enough, he ran right into a Kane choke slam. So me and Trent didn't have much of a future as wrestling managers. We gave it our best shot, but it didn't turn out for us. <laughs> I'm sure, Larry, you probably have. Uh, you ever experienced anything like that yourself in a live event? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, I remember my uh, my friends in uh in like '95, like SummerSlam, heckling the shit out of Bob Holly, and like <laughs> Bob was trying to be happy go lucky Bob Holly at the time. And my one friend was this, oh my god, this young man was just talking some shit. And Bob Holly kind of laughed it off until he was going to the back and my friend said something and Bob Holly stopped and he goes, hey, I'll fuck you up. And my friend, like, I thought the young lad was going to shit his pants. It was... Hey, it sounds like Bob Holly, so... Yeah. That sounds like Bob Holly 100%, absolutely. I always so. crack up at, like, one of the... um things on being the elite that Frankie Kazarian has kept alive is Frankie Kazarian when he was working at uh, at uh, WWE 
Um, he was working like getting ready for a velocity match, and um, he's sitting there doing the uh, the armband work. Uh, so you you, you problem down with your feet and your pump, getting a little pre match pumping, and he's 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 getting the pre match pump on, and Bob Holly's are getting the pre match pump on. And he's like, he's like, I just wanted to talk to Bob Holly. He's like, cause Bob Holly was like a really good wrestler and seemed kind of cool. He's like, so I just looked over at Bob and he's he's getting his pump on. I'm like, hey Bob. He's like, really like your entrance music. And Hardcore Holly just stops and looks at him and goes, do ya? <laughs> and Kazarian, he's like, he's like, he's scared the ever living shit out of me. <laughs> and then like they do that gag now all the time on BT. <laughs> The best one, Steve, is you missed it. He's like, they did one in isolation, and he's like on the phone with one of the guys in SCU, and he does the do you gimmick to him over the phone. And Tracy Brooks was like, God damn it, stop that. And a fucking frying pan flies in the frame. <laughs> so, y- your girl Tracy Brooks kind of made a cameo on BT knocking out her husband. <laughs> well, good to see Tracy getting some work during these hard times. And it's a nice little segue, too, because we're heading to some women's action. Uh, Victoria and Nydia taking on Molly Holly and Jazz. Uh, Victoria gets the win. And Molly's still working that wig gimmick, which we talked about on the last podcast. Uh, they had the they had Molly doing the wig gimmick right after the WrestleMania. They pull it off in the first match after it. It, it was a bad, bad way of doing the gimmick. But, yeah. I was this many years old when I realized that Miss Madness and Molly Holly were the same person. That, oh, that was yeah, something that was... I've learned this year because I was watching. I'm rewatching 1999 Nitro because, well, I'd never watched it before because I'd gotten angry at WCW at this point, and I'm like, that Miss Madness girl looks like a young Molly Holly. Google time. Oh, okay. There's a reason for that because it is. Yeah, there you have it. And as big a fan of Victoria as I was during this point, I remember nothing about the match. No, nothing. I, I'm sure I got some. I think I got some pictures. Batista versus Hurricane. Don't remember that at all. Bet it didn't take long. I'm sure the uh, Hurricane sure died a glorious death. I remember the Hurricane popping up after the show. Um, he was uh, hanging out with, with some of the uh, fans. I, re- I remember that. And then there was a match with Christian and Chris Jericho, and Jericho got distracted by Trish Stratus. And as much as you would think I remember something with Trish Stratus, uh, I'm kind of drawing a blank on that one to be honest i actually have a pretty cool um memory of this match uh that i believe we were doing a dueling clb y2j chant and like i i recall something to the effect of it being loud enough that they'd done a lockup and like broke and they both like turned and like gave us a little bit of like a clap um like i remember the crowd being obsessed with these two um tons of y2j shirts tons of uh, captain charisma shirts I'm sure it was a great match because it was Christian and Chris Jericho in 2004. I'm I'm yeah. positive it was, but I don't. All I remember from the match is the dueling chant and them, um, actually, you know, seeming to be a little impressed that they got that from 3,400 people in the middle of nowhere in Missouri. Absolutely. Now I do remember the main event with uh, uh, Chris Benoit defending against Triple H. I guess Shawn Michaels wasn't working the house shows house shows at that point, brother. But uh, it's Benoit and Triple H and. Benoit got the win. Allegedly, there was some interference from Batista. I don't remember that part. There was a part that I kind of remember during the show where Jonathan Coachman, by the way, the ring announcer for this show, there's some gimmicks more in the middle of the show where he was talking some shit about Benoit. Benoit comes down, puts him in the crossface. I remember that part. And I remember this match being, you know, perfectly fine wrestling like you expect from Benoit and Triple H. I remember uh, Triple H, uh, I remember the Voodoo Penguin was sure that Triple H was going to win the title. And he's doing the whole belt motion, and Triple H was down with it. And uh, 
But no, there was not the history. Uh, history was not made at the Show Me Center on that night. I believe you bought an inflatable sledgehammer to commemorate the occasion. That is correct. The old inflatable Triple H sledgehammer, which I'm sure died a miserable death, like those inflatable things seem to do. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> I also remember when I ran up to the rail after the match and tried to slap Benoit's hand. That uh, that I did not get a hand slap in return. And well, I've, later, uh, I mean, hmm? I've said for years that we were the only two people in the building cheering for Triple H that night and that uh, we were proven right at the that end of the right. day. I'll just leave it at that. And he had not slapped, and Benoit would not slap my hand as, uh, as a result either. So I don't know. Um, maybe there were signs on that particular evening. We'll never know for sure. But uh, all in all, it's a fun time had by all. We went back, went out, went out to the back and saw some wrestlers heading out. Uh, Jonathan Coachman, a very friendly fellow at the time. Uh, signed uh, your Y2J bobblehead. Very impressive. Yeah, we had some friendly back and forth with Coach. He asked whose bobblehead it was. I said it was mine. He said, oh, we make bobbleheads of you now. They'll put anybody over. Got a quick signature, and on he went. Nice guy. Yeah. So, yeah, we always liked Coach a little bit. Uh, well, then he came back many, many years later, and he was on Raw, and that didn't go so well. But other than yeah, that, been. Yeah, yeah, it is what it is. But uh, fun time had by all that night at uh, the Show Me Center. The first meeting of me and the Penguin. And yes, a lot of things have changed in the years since. They really have. It's uh, it's kind of crazy, dude. Uh, older, hopefully a little wiser. Trent, now a father. Yeah. Steve, you're... Yeah, that happened. Steve, Steve. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm me, yeah. <laughs> Rambling drunk, you know. It's, uh, things have changed a lot, obviously. But, uh, and then uh, I, I also... In my in my younger years here, I end up going to the Raw that uh, the very next Raw after that, and um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that. The main thing I recall was uh, there are a couple high points on that Raw which lead to storyline here, where uh, you know Ric Flair and Batista were the tag team champions. They're taking on Chris Benoit and Shawn Michaels because they're kind of building up the Benoit Michaels business, and there is a big uh, kind of dusty type finish deal where. Uh, Michael's got the pin on Flair, and everybody thought, oh, there's new tag team champions. And sure enough, there are no tag team champions because Ric Flair's not the legal man. Damn, old, the old dusty finish got you every time. But uh, I remember that being a fun time. And then uh, somebody who pops up in the first match on back last year, Shelton Benjamin, was in the main event on the show against Triple H. And Belton, the Shelton, of course, coming over from SmackDown, had been part of the world's greatest tag team. He was kind of a younger fella looking to make a mark, and he sure made a mark on that night, pinning Triple H after about 20 minutes or so. Big big time deal there. I believe he got two wins against Triple H on TV during this little yes. backlash build. Which, yes, you know, he got but, a win, I think, the week after he also got one. I believe that was via countout. Which led to everybody thinking, you know, Shelton's going to be pushed. He's the next big thing. This is going to be awesome. He's a great worker. And then... Yeah... I know. That I unfortunately did not help happen for young Shelton back then. No, no it did not. No. There were heady times. There. I remember, in fact, I was uh, one of the people starting up the Shelton chant during that particular match, and nobody thought the kid had a chance. But sure enough, lightning in a bottle. Oh, well, Steve, you were ahead of your time, so. I'm still trying to find my time. There you go. All right, so that's going to bring us to WWE Backlash 2004, April 18th from the Rexall Place in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Chris Benoit lives his dream, becomes the World Heavyweight Champion at WrestleMania 20. 
This event was in his hometown, and the mayor of Edmonton had declared it Chris Benoit Day. So this was a big deal for Benoit returning home. And uh, we get the big video package uh, highlighting the WrestleMania 20 win. And we start off, as Steve mentioned, with Ric Flair battling Shelton Benjamin in our opening match. At the end of the day, Shelton uh, continues his momentum after those Triple H wins. Picks up another win here over Ric Flair at nine and a half minutes. Trent, what did you think of our opener? Um, I'm going to compare this to when I saw Ozzy last year. I, I know that seeing Ozzy in the 80s would have been a better show. I know that seeing Ozzy in the 80s would have been a better time frame. But Ozzy came out, played the hits, and didn't waste our time. That's what I thought about this Ric Flair-Shelton Benjamin match. I thought Flair looked good. He did his normal stuff. Shelton's a hell of a hand. We know that. Um, it, it started up, and I'm like, wow, it seems weird that Shelton Benjamin and Ric Flair had a singles match on pay-per-view. Like, like, there's nowhere in the file cabinet that is my brain that would have put that as happening, but here we are. I thought it was a fine opener. I, I actually was kind of excited for the show um, after watching this match. That, that excitement, we'll talk about what happens to it a little later, but I thought it was a just fine opener. Steve? Kind of as Trent mentioned, it's kind of like a Ric Flair formula match, except obviously Flair is about 20 years older, and it's a little bit slower, but uh, Shelton's there for it, and... Flair is kind of in a good, he was having a nice little run at this point, um, you know, doing his typical spots. He had a couple crazy moments here and there. And, uh, yeah, perfectly decent way to start the show. The one thing I didn't like, there's kind of, this, Sheldon did this weak uh, top rope clothesline for the finish, and I think he I think he tried to do that a lot at this point and didn't really get over. Yeah, I agree with that. The finish is flat. Um, and Trent, it's like a good comparison with the Aussie stuff. It's like, you know, Ric Flair, obviously, in 2004, he wasn't the Ric Flair of old, but there was at times we would still get flashes of Ric Flair. And, you know, he played the hits. The, I mean, the crowd was into him, even though he was supposed to be a heel. And it's just, yeah, it's fun watching Rick. Shelton was tremendously fun at this time. And he's one of those guys that you look back on the time frame and you're like, really should have done a lot more with him. Uh, yeah, pretty good, really solid match. I enjoyed it. Right person won, and uh, it was a it was a fun way to get these these shows started. I thought. So we had yeah, a... definitely the right person won. Good. Definitely a right person won, and Flair was in the perfect spot. And Flair is always a master of uh, making people, even as you say, you know, May twenty years a little bit too late for him. But uh, yeah, good, just good, solid stuff. Well, I mean, when you know how to work and you know how to actually put someone over and put them over correctly. I mean, you kind of don't lose that, even if you get older. Yeah, he's a step slower. Yeah, he's not as crisp. Yeah, it's not quite the same. But like I said, he's enough Ric Flair that it still works. That's all it kind of had to be. Yeah. And and here in 2004, nine minutes of Ric Flair was as good as anything else you were getting in the company. He, oh. There was no need to go 19 or 20, but this was fine. Exactly, exactly. Had a, uh, a Randy Orton interview hyping up his um, match later on in the show with uh, Mick Foley, which led to, as you, you guys were talking about earlier, and uh, two guys you talked about, actually, your man, the coach, defeating Tajiri. It's six and a half minutes, Steve, and what did you think about this weird match? Uh, strange booking, strange everything going on here. There was a little bit of feud going on with the Tajirian coach. On that Raw, I mentioned Tajiri had spit the green mist in the eyes of the coach, and that led to this match. And the one thing I will say in defense of it, I, 
And may it's just because Tajiri's freaking awesome. But I'm kind of—I was kind of wondering: Did Jonathan Coachman kind of miss his miss his calling in wrestling? Should he have spent more time in the ring trying to, you know, become a worker and whatnot? Could could we have missed out on something there? I'm not saying the guy would have been, you know, a main event talent or anything like that, but he could have been a nice little decent mid card talent. That uh, he was always good getting heat during that time period as well. So always a place for guys like that. I'm not sure that the guy should have been going over, but you know, I, eh. You know, they were trying to put Garrison Cade with him, and Garrison Cade, one of these guys who uh, was supposed to be something and never quite made it. This is true. Trent, what did you think? Uh, as wrestling fans, we all have a like a list in our head of matches that if if someone's not a fan and they're willing to give it a shot, the matches that we would show them to say, yeah, this is why I have watched this my whole life. This is why I love this form of sports entertainment. Then we also have lists of matches that we would make sure that they never saw because they would make fun of us for the rest of our lives. This is the type of match that I would be embarrassed if I was watching. If I was watching this and someone walked in, I would turn off wrestling um, because I, I coach was fine as a heel. He got great heat. I understand that. I get what's going on. Um, Garrison Cade randomly meandering out to the ring to help is fine and all, I guess. But th- this seemed kind of a waste of my time and a waste of Tajiri's talents, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that point. Um, I will say this. It, uh, first of all, it wasn't good, but it could have been a lot worse with a non-wrestler in the role. But Tajiri's really good. And as you guys mentioned, uh, Coach did get good heat in the role. But yeah, it, it's not good. Um you know, it, uh, the show, show dipped there a little bit, but thankfully we rebounded because we had a handicap match. Christian and Trish Stratus coming off of the big WrestleMania 20 heel turn, facing off with Chris Jericho. Kind of your traditional post-WrestleMania backlash uh, version of a rematch. They went about 11 minutes. At the end of the day, Chris Jericho ends up picking up the win. Um, I don't like handicap matches normally. They tend to really suck. But I thought this one was actually good. It was enjoyable. I thought Jericho was a really fun babyface. Christian and Trish played their roles as heels extremely well. And I thought it was really enjoyable and made me happy after that last match. So, uh, Steve, what do you think? I agree with most of what you said, except you'll never convince me that Chris Jericho is babyface in this feud. You will never convince me with that because we all know that Chris Jericho started this whole thing with Trish Stratus over a bet. He bet Christian a Canadian dollar that he could go with Trish Stratus. And I don't care. I mean, don't even try to leave that out of the pre-match video. They're trying to sell it like, oh, Jericho had all these deep and serious feelings for Trish, but uh, he's been backstabbed and bamboozled by his uh, supposed best friend Christian. And that's just not the case at all. I mean, Jericho started this whole thing on a lark. And uh, Trish was uh, the wronged party, and Christian was smart enough to get with the correct party. So I was all about Christian and Trish here, and uh, Trish was pretty fantastic, as we all know. And, you know, like Trent said earlier, anytime you put Jericho and Christian out there for 11 minutes or whatever, you're going to have a pretty darn fine wrestling match. Definitely one of the highlights of the show, and you know, this feud is one of the, uh, one of the highlights of 2004. There you go. Trent, what did you think? Uh, these two, Christian and Jericho, were probably my two favorites in 2004, and I remember why. Uh, these three took, and and Steve's absolutely correct that the story behind all this is weak at best, 
And these three not only capitalized on the story in the backstage promos and the outside the ring stuff, but they're still telling that story in the ring. Um, totally agree with you, Larry. They are playing their roles perfectly, even if Steve thinks Jericho isn't a babyface. I, I don't like Jericho as a babyface, but he's making it work here. Um, the one thing I'll definitely say is the when when Jericho starts spanking Trish for no reason in the middle of the match, um, the crowd reaction from 2004 I don't think is what the crowd reaction in 2020 would be. Um, that that kind of stuck out like a sore thumb to me. But uh, this was fantastic, a great match. Everybody's doing their part. Um, absolutely no complaints, and I really enjoyed watching it again. Well, I think it depends what kind of crowd you go in front of in 2020. Like, if you went in front of certain rallies and whatnot, you might get that kind of reaction. That's all I'm saying. You, you think Cape Girardeau might be might be cheering in 2020 like they were in uh, 2004? I don't know. The, I don't know the demographics of that particular town, but I think a lot of Missouri would be good, sir. Uh, there you go. <laughs> we talked about Eugene earlier as Steve was uh, talking about house shows, and backstage Eugene is uh, looking through the latest. Here's a blast from the past. WWE Divas Magazine. Yeah. Uh, and that leads to Eugene, who, for those of you who don't know the Eugene character, I guess to put it kindly, Eugene was a development, developmentally challenged young lad who walked around confused most of the time. But when he was in the ring, every once in a while, he would fire up and get serious because... I guess like one of the best ways to put it at the time is they compared him to like a an autistic savant that when he got fired up and into his wrestling he was actually great. So he was walking around all simple backstage oogling this magazine. He ends up in their locker room, runs into Gail Kim who is only in her underwear. And she screams, which leads to Eugene screaming, which leads to Molly Holly coming up with her bald head and everyone continuing to scream. It was a wacky backstage segment. Uh, and age is, age is so terribly, obviously. Yeah. You, have, well, and- you have this goofball Eugene who just wanders into the women's locker room for no apparent reason. And uh, you got the heel girl screaming. Are we supposed to feel bad for Eugene? Like, what, what, what is this? What is this crap? And I feel like as time went on with the Eugene character, they got into more silly, goofy and I think that was okay. I think I, the Eugene character is an interesting idea. The the savant part of it, I, I always thought could have been done so well. But in the beginning here, they leaned so heavily on what appeared to be, I, I don't know how else to word it, a disability storyline. And wow, it was rough to watch. Will, William Regal just comes in because he's he's Eugene's caretaker because Eric Bischoff refuses to. The, the whole thing seems really out of place when you're watching it on your couch in 2020, that's for sure. Yeah, especially when you got Regal flat-eye calling him a window licker on TV. And shit like that. <laughs> yeah, they weren't subtle about it at all. It doesn't age well. Like, and, and I'm not one of the people that typically thinks we should use our modern sensibilities on older stuff, but this wasn't a good idea in 2004 either. No, it wasn't good then. Let's be let's be honest. And we, uh, you and I, knew some people who were deep into this Eugene characters. You know how it is sometimes on the internet and message boards. Sometimes we all kind of get in this herd mentality and get in, into really dumb ideas and dumb characters. And Eugene in 2004 was one of them for uh, TWTF. Yeah, it it is really weird when you you're watching a show back like this and. 
yeah, it's some of the stuff. It's like, yeah, it's a product of its time, and then like stuff like this, you're like, oof. It's like that wasn't even good for the time. So, thankfully, we moved on to something I thought was pretty good, and I'll, I'll be going to you first, Steve. We had the WWE Women's Championship match. Our champion Victoria defending against Lita. End of the match, Victoria wins in about eight minutes to retain her championship. Steve, what did you think of our women's title match? Well, I will say it was a big step up from the one we saw at WrestleMania with uh, Victoria and Molly Holly. That one was kind of a kind of a disaster, and this one was a little bit better. I thought um, it was a little bit confusing for fans because you know Victoria is the Bayface champion. Lita always got cheers during this period of time. You're doing the Bayface Bayface gimmick, which is always kind of tough to do. They did the best they could with it, and I, you know, Victoria eventually gets the win. That's that's nice. They're continuing her title run. Then afterwards, you had Molly Holly and Gail Kim come out to get some heat and whatnot, which uh, led to more of these four doing things. And I will say it was a pretty decent match. At the same time, and this is this is kind of one of those things where you're watching with 2020 eyes and whatnot. Um, I would say that my least favorite women's championship match on WrestleMania was uh, Becky Lynch and Shannon Baszler, and Becky and Shane would blow this match out of the water, no questions asked. Fair enough. Trent, what did you think of the women's match? I remember the women's division at this time as being um, objectively bad, and so I do want to start by saying that this match is much better than I remember 2004 WWE women's wrestling being. Um, that said... It, it, the division's treated as a popcorn match, and you're going to put two baby faces out there. The crowd's not into it. If you Just like Steve said, if you're comparing it to today's standard, it's just far, far below that, but still better than I remember women's wrestling being back then. Um, my, my real complaint here is uh, WWE bought Tattoo all the things she said and bought the rights to it for being Victoria's theme, but apparently didn't buy the rights in perpetuity. And what the right. hell are you thinking? Like, the Victoria character needs the song. Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts about entrance music coming up in some of these matches. Um, but the Victoria character needed that song. Like, I was just so let down from her coming out to a generic version. I don't think I ever got back up. I do agree. I, that is, like, that was probably one of the most perfect song pairings in a long while. It it, just, it worked so well. Yeah, that's, that is the shame of the network sometimes is when you... You go back and you watch something and you get that, like, just generic network horse shit. But, uh, yeah, really, really solid match. I enjoyed it overall. It was definitely better than Coach and Tajiri, no doubt about that. I thought it was on par with uh, Shelton and uh, Ric Flair as well. So it was really solid. And show, again, rebonding a little bit. And, yeah, the post-match angle was Molly Holly and Gail Kim running out to uh, attack the ladies and continue our drama in the women's division but business picked up next hardcore match for the intercontinental championship young randall k orton the intercontinental champion facing off with an individual we know as mick foley and this was built up prior to going into wrestlemania with orton throwing foley down the steps he had the rock and sock versus evolution at wrestlemania and we finally got the big singles match. And, you know, Mick Foley had wanted to work with Randy Orton. Randy Orton was a guy WWE really, really wanted to push. Hence the uh, involvement with Evolution and everything. But he was at a time in his career where he needed that 
that big marquee match to hang his hat on to prove that he could go. And at the end of the night here, Randy Orton beats Mick Foley 23 minutes. And it's a pretty fucking excellent match. You have Mick Foley. You know, we talk about Ric Flair, but Mick Foley was still a good bit, good bit Mick Foley at this stage. He came in, he had a job in mind, and that was to do the job for Randy Orton. They just have this fantastic match, and it's not just that Mick Foley can still go, it's that you really see Randy Orton step up in this match. Not in just terms of taking punishment, but stepping up as somebody that could be a future player for this company. And when the match was over, the most important thing I walked away from, I remember at the time, and even watching it back now, is not only do I think this match is excellent and I love it, but this was the match that solidified Randy Orton as a future star for this company. So I think it accomplished all of the goals of not only giving us an outstanding match, but it, it was designed to help make Randy Orton a star, and it did that, and you look at the work Mick Foley's done over his career, and he helped Sting, he helped Triple H, he helped Steve Austin, he helped The Rock, he helped Edge, he helped Randy Orton. And not a lot of people give him enough credit for that. Mick Foley kind of knew what his role was. He was a star, but he was not the star. But he knew that, and it didn't stop him from working any harder. And you see a match like this, and it's just... I fucking love it. Um, Trent, what did you think? I I almost feel like we're doing this match a disservice by doing the show this way because I just want to squeal and, and interject and interrupt you when you're talking about that stuff because this match was so damn good. Um, first of all, Foley looks phenomenal. This may be the best shape Mick Foley was ever in. I don't remember Mick Foley looking that small and looking that quick in the 2000s. Like, like this was an early 90s McFoley, but even slimmer, I think. Looked fantastic. Um, it is so jarring to watch one of these matches in 2020 because I'm sure in 2004 I'd seen so many barbed wire and thumbtack spots that I was desensitized, and this was just another match I was eating pizza to. But, but last night, watching this match back through with my wife, when Orton takes the shirtless bump into the thumbtacks, she just turned her head and said, I can't. And this is someone who's watched wrestling, you know, with me. She she went with Steve and I to Royal Rumble one year. She actually knows wrestling. And it just was so jarring in such a good way. The best compliment I can give this match is I know Mick Foley was never the Intercontinental Champion in 2004. Like my brain tells me that didn't happen, but I bit on a false finish with Mick pinning Randy um on the spot going off the stage through the equipment. Um just a brutal spot done so well by both of them. Mick goes down for the pin. I thought I just had forgotten a Mick Foley in a continental title reign. Um, to quote Conrad Thompson, if you watch one match this week on the network, I say this is it. Fantastic match. Steve. Yeah, there's just not a lot else I can add to that that you guys uh, haven't already covered. It's just, uh, you know, like Larry said, uh, Foley was out there to do the job. And uh, he took this kid, Randy Orton, and... Randy Orton, he he's earmarked for success from the moment he stepped into Ohio Valley Wrestling. Uh, got shot in the Evolution, and this is kind of the match where he uh, he proved that he earned that spot, that he he earned all that hype he'd been, he'd been getting for the past couple of years. 
And quite frankly, we sit here 16 years later after this match, and I'm not sure I've liked the Randy Orton match more since then. I'm going to say I probably haven't, to be honest with you. And yeah, I'm a little lower on Randy than some people are, but uh, this thing was just uh, top-notch. And yeah, Foley was always always a master of uh, putting other guys over. I'm not quite sure why he doesn't get the cred for it, other than... I just, you know, we live in the age of social media, and everybody's, like, uh, much more visible now than they ever were. And, uh, you know, Foley's never done anything terrible, but he also comes off as a little, I don't know, iffy sometimes. I don't know. I think some people just kind of are kind of, you know, against his persona for whatever reason. But, uh, yeah, just uh, good shit, pal, as Vince would say. I don't think Foley ever lived down the Ric Flair comments of being a glorified stuntman. Whether they were fair or deserved or not, I think that that has clouded people's perception of Mick ever since. Um, and, and to be blunt, Steve, no one who's going to put themselves through these type of matches is going to be a normal person on social media when you're examined 24 hours a day. Uh, there, there's yeah. nothing surprising to me that Mick Foley's personality is a bit different than the type of guy you want to have a beer with, but damn, he did a good job putting people over. And I completely agree with you. This is probably my favorite Randy Orton match, and I never even realized it. Oh, it's it, I can tell you it's definitely mine. And you know the funny thing about, you know, the Ric Flair comment about the glorified stuntman? That's a dude who said that, and then not too far after this was fucking doing barbed wire spots and thumbtack spots in ECW on sci-fi. Yeah, there you have it. And uh, yeah, Flair's book did have that. It had the impact on a couple reputations. We've talked before about how uh, DDP's career was done disservice by the way Flair described him in his book, and uh, and that guy didn't really get credit until recently when he saved Jake Roberts and Scott Hall's life, pretty much. Yeah. Well, and since since you two know more than I do, and since I have the opportunity, that there's long been this this story, this rumor, this this storyline or narrative, if you will, that Flair's book was not exactly influenced by Flair that much. That it was kind of a money thing, and, and they maybe sent Rick a script, and he told some... Rick told some stories, they sent him a script, he said whatever. Uh, do you all have any thoughts on that, or am I speaking completely out of turn? Because I've heard that brought up a few different times, that I, Flair's book may not have been all Flair. I do think Mark Mann in particular had a couple of axes to grind with people. I, I say DDP especially. I know that... Man never really cared for for Dime Dallas Page, and I think that uh, was part of that particular issue. I've been part of Foley one as well. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Like I don't know for sure or anything, but I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, you know, Flair is. I mean, he's admitted throughout his life about doing things for money. Like, and he just did that interview with Austin on the network, and Steve Austin brings up, he's like, I want to talk to you about going to TNA, and he goes, I did it for the money. That's the first thing he says. He's like, I was paying well, alimony it, payment to three wives, and I needed the money. And <laughs> I regret it to this day. I apologize yeah. to Vince for it, and I'm sorry, and blah, blah, blah. I did it for the money. So, I mean, I wouldn't, if, I if wouldn't, even, wouldn't put the story past him, Trent. If even half the stories are true about him living the Ric Flair lifestyle in real life, I'm sure he needed the frickin' money. Absolutely. Yeah. So... And then uh, we, we, we had a cool-down match for sure. The Hurricane and Rosie battling La Resistance, Steve. Hurricane and Rosie <sighs> won in five minutes. I, it was a kind of bland, not-good TV match on a pay-per-view. 
it was something that was there, uh, nothing really memorable at all. And uh, you had uh, you had Eugene wandering down to the ring for no apparent reason, which was also terrible. I, I was not a fan. Trent, your thoughts? Can I take this time to talk about how awesome the uh, Evolution music was? Because I forgot that in the last match. Um, no, my, <laughs> my, my, my I, I wrote down cooldown match. Um, and uh, one the one observation I have, I forgot how good Rosie could move around for a big guy. Uh, when we talk about best big guys of all time, Rosie uh, really embraced this. It was a shit character. I mean, he was the superhero in training. I'm allowed to say it because that's what he was, by God. Um, and uh, he really, I think, embraced it, had fun with it. And I thought he was moving around well in there. But yeah, that didn't make this match watchable. It the Once Eugene hit the ring, it went from bad to worse. Well, you know, Rosie, I think Rosie was a victim of bad timing uh, more than anything. You re- we all remember three-minute warning with Rosie and Jamal, and they came in their big Samoan shithouses, and uh, one of them got to go away for a while, and the other one stuck around and uh, got to be superhero in training. And by the time Jamal had been away and over in all Japan and other places for a while, he kind of got his stuff together, and he got to become Umaga. So, I mean, you know, it's all about timing. You know, what's interesting is um, this is going to run on the um, the 19th and we're, you know, we're right around the anniversary of this pay-per-view um, when this pay-per-view took place because it took place April 18th. And uh, speaking of Rosie, um, like a couple days before this is going to actually hit live for everybody uh, was the four-year anniversary of uh, Rosie's passing as well. Rosie and Jamal both uh, no longer with us. Yeah. So obviously, I, I was actually going to, I was actually going to ask if Rosie was still with us, and I knew the answer without asking it, so I didn't. There you go. So, and uh, so we had a, we had another cooldown match. We we had the cooldown match to heat up for another cooldown match. Is uh, Edge battled Kane, and this was certainly a match that happened. Edge was returning from injury, was gone about a year. And they have a six-minute match. And, I mean, I don't know if he was rusty from coming back, but the crowd was dead. I didn't think Kane looked particularly good in the match. And I, I it's like one of the... I, I'm trying not to be overly rude, but but it's like... It's one of the worst edge matches I've seen, but it's not the worst because we just had that Edge and Randy Orton match that lasted three days, which is still going on, some say. So, I mean, it's not good at all, but the other thing was, too, is I really thought that, like, the crowd would be way more up for Edge being back. And they really weren't to me, so, Steve. Yeah, um... I remember, I recall 2004 Edge uh, not quite getting over as well as people had hoped. I remember when I went to the Bad Blood show a couple months after this, they had Edge's face on those chairs that they you know give out to the first hire many rows. They thought that Edge's return would be a big deal. They thought he would pop up right away and become uh, you know a top guy for them. And the fans, for whatever reason, that did they didn't really take to him. And from my personal perspective as a smart at the time, um. He wasn't really doing good work, and this match was kind of a sign of that. And he had some, he kind of struggled throughout the year, from what I can recall. I think he may have had one good match with Randy Orton or something, but uh, he was kind of just there, to be honest. And I think he was, I think he continued on that just there path until uh, the whole thing with Lee and Matt Hardy happened. 
Fair enough. Trent. Yeah, I, I actually wrote down that this is the period before the Rated R Superstar, and I was down on edge at this time, and I, I didn't see what the fuss was about. Um, Battle of Edge's worst theme music versus Kane's best theme music. Can we talk about how like WWE is bringing in bands? This is the period where WWE bring. I believe it was Finger Eleven. I hopefully I got that right. That's doing Kane's theme here, yeah, and they're right. actually bringing in real recording artists to make songs. And as much as I love Jim Johnson, I thought it was a nice change of pace. Uh, yeah, Edge is working a cast gimmick, and there's a stipulation he can't work use the cast. So for those of you following along at home. Booking him with a cast is booking. Booking him that he can't use the cast is overbooking. And the whole thing just fell flat for me, and Edge gets an anticlimactic win. I honestly had a hard time paying attention. I found it boring. And I don't blame you. I mean, it's just, it's there. And it's like, you know, it's like, listen, Kane wasn't like the world's greatest worker, and he wasn't fucking Ric Flair or anything, but... Kane had some good matches. There were times when Kane could really move when he was motivated and he was in shape. And, you know, as we all know, Edge obviously had a ton of bangers in terms of great matches during his career. And this was just, this was not their night for whatever reason. No, I mean, Edge was, Edge was rusty. Let's just say what it was. He was, he had just come back. He wasn't, maybe he wasn't quite ready or he just hadn't done enough training or whatever, but uh, he just went there for it and, it took him a while to get back on the, on the right track. It, it, it also really, it really felt like Edge's character here was I'm happy to be here, guys, and that that's just not going to work in in no. 2004 WWE. Fair enough. So the main event of this show is for the World Heavyweight Championship. It is a rematch from WrestleMania 20, which is if you can still watch it and enjoy it for a wrestling match, um, it is one of the greatest main events in WrestleMania history. One of the greatest Mania matches, in my opinion, anyway. It is Chris Benoit defending against Shawn Michaels and Triple H. So, they have their rematch here. They work a 30-minute main event. And they have some great callbacks to the first match. They also try to mindfuck the fans, because there's a point to where Shawn Michaels is working the sharpshooter, and Earl Hepner ends up coming out as the referee. And he gets, obviously, a massive heat because this is Canada and he screwed Bret Hart and all that. Anyway, I, I fucking love this match. I think it's a absolutely awesome match. I think it's different enough from the WrestleMania 20 match, um, but pretty much on the same level. Um, little things like the callbacks, the Earl Hebner spot, working into the Shawn Michaels stuff. And then the end of it is, I mean, the crowd plays into this so well. And you have Shawn Michaels tapping out in Canada. So the Canadian hero wins, and in a way it feels kind of like some vindication for the Canadian fan base from the whole Bret Hart thing. But I love this match. I think it's the, depending on your mileage, because I know some people don't like hardcore stuff and all that, and obviously some people can't go back and watch Benoit stuff. Technically, I think this is the best wrestling match on the show. It's excellent. Uh, Obviously followed closely by... Um, Mick Foley and Randy Orton, and those are the two matches that carry the show. But I love this match; I think it's awesome. Steve, your thoughts? Okay, I'm gonna say. I mean, personally, I enjoyed the WrestleMania 20 match better. I thought uh, that had a better feel to it. Uh, the crowd was hot for both matches. Don't get me wrong, but uh, you know, Benoit going as a challenger, I thought it added a lot to that match. 
And, uh, you know, the Survivor Series 97 flashback stuff, I mean, your, your mileage might vary on that stuff. Uh, some people love it. The Canadian fans were into it. For me, I wasn't not a huge fan of it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I, by 20, 2004, I was already sick of Earl Hebner and all that nonsense. And uh, I don't know what Earl Hebner is doing today, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's Earl Hebner. And um, I'll be honest with you, though, Larry and Trent, um, you know, watching Benoit and WrestleMania 20 didn't bother me, and in the match it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me here. He's just Chris Benoit. He's out there wrestling, but man, when they pan to his family at ringside, I just fucking ugh, I, I, I can't take it. I just ugh. yeah, that, that didn't that, that's what that it hits me. Well. Yeah, it's like fuck. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I didn't. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the main reasons I didn't quite enjoy this one quite as much. It was it was a fine main event, decent wrestling match. Didn't care for the screw job stuff. Didn't care for the you know seeing the you know the, the unfortunate situation being reminded of. So yeah, that's my take. Trent, what did you think of this match? So we've been friends. God, I've known you guys longer than some of the listeners have been alive. And I've popped up on podcasts here and there, and I've guessed it here. And there's some penguin Easter eggs you can find and go to offtheteam.com and blah 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 blah. How is it that my first time on a podcast with you two in years, you're like, hey, let's do a whole show about Chris Benoit and how great he is in his hometown with his family. Like, come on, dudes. What? We just know you're trying... the number one Chris Benoit fan. You always were back in the day. I remember it. I'm trying to have a quiet a quiet Friday evening, enjoy a couple adult beverages, watch some wrestling to prepare for a podcast with my buddies, and I'm just, God bless. Um, so... The, the string of unfortunate haircuts continue. Chris Jericho, um, Chris Jericho, Shawn Michaels, and Triple H, as a, as a guy with long hair, there's a certain length of hair that you hate having because it's called in-between. You can't do anything with it. And somehow Chris Jericho, Shawn Michaels, and Triple H all end up with that exact same hair length at the exact same time, and it looks like crap. Um, I'm with Steve, Larry. I like the WrestleMania 20 match better. I thought this felt a little flat for me, and... I, I think the second half of the match was better than the first. I think 30 minutes was too long. I could have done with about 20. Um, but that that's kind of par for the course with Triple H main events. I, I knew the job was dangerous when I took it. But, man, the the biggest spot the biggest spot of the match is Shawn Michaels going off the top rope to the outside for a jumping nothing. Like, Benoit and Triple H are standing up and punching each other, and Shawn jumps over both of them to elbow drop the table that nobody is on. That that and table it, gave him a dirty fucking look earlier today. It was a Canadian table. Yeah. Man, that that that's just like I'm sitting there and they're talking and it is a great spot, but it just didn't work for me. It kind of took me out of it. I will say the finish is phenomenal. I love the visual of Triple H crawling on his hands and knees to try and stop Sean from tapping out, and Sean just can't take it anymore. And he taps out clean in the center of the ring where Chris Benoit has now gone cleanly over Triple H and Shawn Michaels in back-to-back months. He's the hero, and we pan to his crowd, to his family in the crowd, and I'm supposed to feel good about that. And, man, that ain't how I felt. Yeah, and that's... You know, and, St- Steve uh, and I talked about that when we, um, when we did WrestleMania 20. It's like a lot of shine on the overall WrestleMania 20 show is off because... Everybody remembers WrestleMania 20 for this culmination of Benoit's journey. And then the end of the show is 
him and his best friend, the two guys that were never supposed to be WWF World Champions, celebrating in this sea of confetti. And it's at the time, it was such a wholesome and pure moment that, as a fan, you know, I absolutely adored. And then you look back on it now and you don't have that same reaction because of what Benoit did. Unfortunately, that shudders a lot of what people think of Eddie's moment as well because it's so connected at WrestleMania 20. And, yeah, you you look at this and, you know, it's, it's it's Chris Benoit Day in Edmonton. It's his hometown. It's the hero returning home. And at the time, I think this is another show that, felt better than it actually is because you're continuing that story. And it looked like Chris Benoit was on the trajectory to actually become a serious world champion and big star. Because he beat Triple H clean at Mania. He beat Shawn Michaels clean here. and They both submitted. He beat him by submission in the middle of the ring. Like, so huge. And then it, it, it went off the rails. Yeah. His because, title run um, was book like shit. <laughs> yeah, because I went to the Bad Blood show, which is which would have been the Raw next Raw pay per view, and you know Triple H, Shawn Michaels, they put Chris Benoit over. They've established him as the man. Yet the next time Raw goes to pay per view, what's the main event? It's Shawn Michaels and Triple H. Chris Benoit is in fucking around mid card cane. You know that's yeah, <laughs> that's what happened. And I, I'm not going to dig into those Raw shows to figure out exactly how it happened either. I just That's just what I remember at the time. It happened via well, and bullshit. <laughs> I want to be clear that I can watch Benoit matches. Um, the, the part of me doing this dive back into the Nitro years I didn't watch, because I basically stopped with, with the Bret Hart, Sting, Hulk Hogan, uh, Starcade 97, I guess it was. I, I was pretty well over it. And I've gone back and I've started watching again, and there's some stuff I actually like. And there's some stuff that's hilarious because it's so bad. I can watch Benoit matches. They don't bother me. This was a show about look how awesome and beloved Chris Benoit is and was. And that story at this time in 2004 was the story that was being told. I get that. And it was fine. And I was I was in on it. I, I was enjoying it. I'm like, I, Chris Benoit won the Royal Rumble on my birthday. You know, and I remember that night. And I'm like, wow, they're finally going to give him the chance. This is the dude I loved when he was in the Four Horsemen, you know, in like 90, 95, 96 WCW. And then WrestleMania 20 happens. And I was watching it with my friends and Eddie and Chris both win. It was such a good moment. And I'm sure, you know, I don't remember this show as much, but I'm sure this was as well. And now looking back on it, it's just kind of like, man, can we talk about McFoley and Randy Orton? Because thumbtacks and barbed wire is less depressing than what I'm getting out of this main event. <laughs> I hear you, good dude. Family story. I know. It's just like you look back on it and it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, you're bringing up Chris Benoit and the Four Horsemen, how you loved it. And it's like, you know, part of me is like, I like that too. And then I'm thinking it's like, you know, when he wins the, tit- the title, I'm like, fucking Wild Pegasus is the WWE world champion. Nobody fucking saw that coming. You know, it's just like, holy shit. It's like, it really fucking happened. And it's just like, but yeah, again, obviously it's, things change. So we're going to kind of wrap this up. Steve, I'm going to go to you first. Kind of final thoughts on the show and a score out of 10. You know, uh, it's kind of similar to WrestleMania 20 in, in that there are a couple uh, couple high spots for sure. We mentioned Foley versus Orton was a fucking fantastic match. 
main event delivered as far as uh, match quality goes. There, you know, the Flair Shelton match was fun. You know, you had the Jericho and the Jericho Christian Trish match was good. You had, I mean, even the woman, you know, even Victoria and Lita wasn't bad. But then you, there were some really low points, like that uh, tag team match with uh, La Resistance. And you had Tajirian Coach. Uh, that's a thing with 2004. There was some good stuff going on, surrounded by a bunch of crap. Just stuff that you would never want to see again. And so that's why... <laughs> As far as out of 10 goes, even though there were a couple high points, I, I can't go any higher than a, a 6 or so. All right, fair enough. Uh, that's a good answer, Steve. That's a detailed answer. Penguin, what do you think final thoughts score out of 10? Um, for people that have never watched this show, I would recommend it because just if you're a nerd about this kind of stuff, the directing and the lighting and the camera work in 2004 is so much different than 2020 and i actually like it better just an interesting oh, that's thought a, that's a fair point, because yeah. there's not 90 million kevin dunn camera cuts mm. oh i didn't i didn't get nauseous a single time it was great like <laughs> nice. i was able to have some beers and eat dinner it was fantastic <laughs> um look look my my two favorite matches are orton versus foley and jericho versus christian i think jericho and christian have other better matches um including the wrestlemania 20 match the main event is fine, but if you want to watch those three in the ring, watch WrestleMania 20. I'm going to give this a 5 out of 10 strictly on the back of that Orton versus Foley match. This show would kind of dud out for me, but that is a hidden gem right in the middle where those two worked their asses off and both look better for it. But everything else to me is either skippable or there's a better version of it a month beforehand at WrestleMania. All right, fair enough. Uh, for comparison, I got a couple other scores here before I give mine. Um, the uh, the cagematch.net cumulative score for this one is actually an 8.45. So, and as I pointed out the la- on the as I pointed out in the WrestleMania review as well, the cage match site has been around since yeah. 2004. Before that yeah. as well, so you're gonna get a lot of you're gonna have a lot of people grading that a lot of people graded that back in 2004. Yeah. Which is fair to say, but I always like to bring that up when we're doing this. And on the 411 website, Kevin Pantoja had done a review of this. He reviewed it in 2015. Kevin really liked this show. He gave it an 8.5. Uh, I go back and I go back and I watch it for this show. I I still love the main event as a wrestling match. I think Orton and um, Foley is fucking awesome. I love it so much. It's so important to Randy Orton's career. And I think it's... it's You have to watch it. I mean, if you haven't seen it, if, if you're kind of like me who... Like, you know Randy Orton can be good, but you've been watching him the past couple years and you're wondering where that Randy Orton went, go back and watch this. Because this was the star-making performance for young Randall. And it's also a great Mick Foley performance. And I also agree with you guys. The uh, the um, Chris Jericho, Christian Trish stuff, good. And uh, like uh, the women's title match, Shelton and Flair, pretty good to solid stuff. Um, and then like the other stuff is kind of forgettable. I'm kind of in that 6.5 range, I think. it's It's really solid with two excellent matches and a couple good, but then there's just... That other stuff that kind of brings it down, and obviously, again, looking back, it's a uh, like like you know you guys mentioned it's a little hard because it's like 
This, this fucking main event, I'm loving it. Again, I think it's close to the Mania match. I do agree the Mania match is better. But they're talking about Chris Benoit Day, and I'm like, okay, I can get over that. And then they hit his family, and it's like, uh... Yeah, didn't really need that. So I find it to be an overall solid show, but there are definitely two matches you should see. And if for some reason you have never, ever, ever watched that Foley Orton match, fucking get on that. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse. High, we're in the middle highest of, recommendation. Yeah, we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic and quarantines. There's no reason for you not to watch this match. Uh, especially no if you're the type who hates hardcore matches because you think they don't have a story, which a lot of them don't. This one does. They're, they're out there telling a story in the ring um, using the weapons. It's top-notch. But, Larry, to your point, had I, watched, had I rated this in 2004 and I left with that good feeling of Chris Benoit being the hero, I'd probably be a 7 or 8. That's simply not the feeling I get watching it today, and I think that's why I'm so low. And I think that's fair. It's a very fair point. And Steve and I talked about that when we talked about our WrestleMania thoughts. It's... It's hard to come away with that same feeling you had in 2004 after what happened happened. Because you you can't look at Benoit as the conquering hero and the good guy that finally won out over everybody that told him he wouldn't thrive. You know, it's it's just not the same. And whether that's fair or not, I mean, it is what it is. But, um, yeah, I just, um, I thought it was, uh, Steve and I decided to do the WrestleMania 20 and the Raw after, and then when we got done, we had, we were talking off air, and we were talking about, like, how we were talking about our beginnings and stuff, and we were talking about you, and Backlash, we decided to do Backlash, and then I got the idea to invite you on, and for those that might remember, back in the, the blog talk days of the podcast, Trent would pop on with us a lot, and it is good to talk to you, my friend, and, uh... Your, your, I must say, your young child is beautiful. Congratulations. Very happy for you. Well, thank you, you, sir. She, she, she clearly takes after her mother more than she does her father, if that's your thought, because, wow. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> no, uh, guys, it's been a pleasure. I've uh, Steve and I, of course, still do some podcasting every now and then, but haven't done one of these with you two in a while, and uh, for at least the time being, I've got some time on my hands, so anytime, gentlemen. It's been a blast. Um, I'm going to plug offtheteam.com. If you miss old school message boards, hey, we still got one. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Penguin. It's dumb stuff, but you might like it. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Steve, anything to say before we close up shop? No, not too much. I mean, I, I, I've loved being on with you and with the Penguin, and we could always do it again sometime. I don't know if Trent wants to do more Chris Benoit. <laughs> and I, I know the other show he went to was a 2012 Royal Rumble, and we have a review of that up on offteam.com. And I don't think either of us want to watch that again either. <laughs> no, no, it was it was great in person, but now that we've watched it back on screen, it was not great. So I'm just gonna go leave the memories alone, Steve. That's what I got to say about that. Indeed. All right. Well, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for your time today. So, in closing, this has been episode 108 of the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play, YouTube, the411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Stay home and stay safe, everybody.